Satan, 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 our Lord and Master. I acknowledge thee as my God and Prince. I promise to serve and obey thee as long as I shall live. I renounce the other God and all the saints. Don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. Our Lord and Master, I acknowledge Go out of the room, Sister Mary. Take the children out of the room. Go, go. As long as I shall live. Satan, Satan, I promise thee that I will do as much evil as I can. I will draw everyone else to evil. I won't fail to serve as authority. I give it my life and my soul. Junk Food Dinner 666. Hail Satan. First up, Satan and the Angels battle over the soul of little Joe in Cabin in the Sky. Next, Satanism infects a nunnery in Alucarda. Finally, the residents of a town in Simi Valley may be demonic in Invitation to Hell. Then what you worried about, honey? Right now I'm wrestling with the devil. Welcome to Junk Food Dinner, episode 666. This is the podcast where each month we scour the internet, video stores, and cable television, searching for the most outrageous and interesting cult films. In Ohio, I am Kevin Moss, and I'm joined by my California co-host Parker Bowman in the 559 and Sean Byron in L.A. This month, we celebrate the number of the beast with three satanic-themed flicks as we take a look at Cabin in the Sky from 1943, Alucarda from 1977, and Invitation to Hell from 1984 but first gentlemen satanist children of the dark lord how the hell are you doing this month that's right (laughs) i'm doing great i'm happy to be here worshiping satan with you guys we've been waiting the whole reason we started the podcast was so that we could get to this episode and worship satan properly so i'm glad it finally happened this is very exciting yeah, this is the last fun number that we had to reach. We we got to episode 69, yeah. got to episode mm-hmm. 420, Yeah. now 666. There's nowhere to go after here. No more fun numbers after this one, right? Well, there's like, what, 600 or 6,969, uh, right? To get a 6969, that, that'll be kind of cool. I guess so, yeah. yeah. That's a good one. But yeah, I think, I mean, 669, that's kind of funny. Right. Yeah, that's well, a good yeah. one. And we yeah. don't have to wait long for that one either. Yeah. But for the That'd most part, for the most part, no, Kevin Moss. There, there is no goodness in our future. That This is the, the peak, the pinnacle of, <laughs> of everything great in our lives. It's true. Well, I think maybe the problem is just that we need more funny numbers in the world. You know, like what, like, what if like 705 is code for like eating a poo-poo? Then we could look forward to that. That's a funny number. <laughs> Well, then we have to have a whole episode based around eating a poo-poo, and you know what that means. <laughs> That's just like another ghoul summer. Is this going to be a ghoul summer? Indeed. <laughs> That's true. And I think it is quite appropriate that episode 666 is our episode right before ghoul summer. So it's like we let the devil kind of usher us in to a very, very dark place. This could only be <laughs> the work of what you call the devil. Yes, it was the devil. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Yeah, that is very fitting. Uh, I feel like Satan works in magnificent ways, and one of those ways is 
uh, ushering in a time of the worst possible movies to watch next month. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now, let me ask you guys this question. Do you think, like, obviously, you know, we, we love to joke about, and maybe you guys will, maybe you take Satan very seriously, but to me, <laughs> Satan is equally as ridiculous as, you know, as an atheist, you know, I, I kind of, you know, I view all kind of mythical creatures, whether it's a god or a Satan, as, as, as somewhat kind of funny. Um, but it is very hilarious when you see someone who's all in on Satan. And I'll give you an example. Recently, we went to Chicago and I saw so we went to Devil Dogs, which is a, you know, a humorously devil themed hot dog place in Chicago. And the, a guy comes in and he's wearing like 666 leggings like he's got like like leggings mm-hmm. with 666 all over it he's got the the like implants on his head for like little nubs for like horns you know he's got tattoos all over his head he's wearing some sort of satanic theme shirt i forget what it was but it definitely had satan in the theme and he's eating at devil dogs you know so <laughs> I, I i have to imagine this guy has weaved his whole persona around he's the devil guy so much so that he apparently can only eat a devil themed <laughs> restaurants uh so I, I don't know i found that pretty hilarious and i don't know just guys that were just into satan like real big i don't know they always strike me as kind of funny and even today like when it's like i hear about somebody like there's this um there's this band called i think they're called twin temples they're like a satanic doo-wop group and uh (laughs) i get the sense that they're like it's not just an act that they're like really into it and i'm like come on come (laughs) on guys how old are you um but yeah i don't know do you do you still find the devil mysterious and uh intriguing or is it is it pretty funny to you at this point i think i'm i'm pretty much with you on this kevin moss but i will say like as a counterpoint you know, like within the world of like death metal, for instance, there are bands that, you know, adopt devil stuff, Satan stuff as their iconography. Right. And I prefer that over the guys that are like super idolizing serial killers and like real world atrocities and stuff like this, where it's like, I don't need Holocaust photos on my album cover, but I will take a cool <laughs> right. fantasy painting of a devil. That's kind of cool if you ask me. Well, and well, sometimes I feel like those things go hand in hand. Like it's like I'm so into Satan that I will shock you with how Satany I am, and here's a picture of an aborted fetus because yeah. I have no regard for anything because of Satan. But I think there's also fun-loving fantasy Satanists. You know what I mean? Who just yeah. like a good you know round of Dungeons and Dragons or whatever, and they want to you know <laughs> watch the movie Legend and things like this. You know, Satan has brought us cool things as well. Oh, yeah. Well, like you said, especially like in the world of heavy metal and fantasy, I, I do like a good devil. But yeah, as as a genuine entity as, or as a guiding principle in life, uh, probably not not for you unless you're 15 or younger. It is shocking to see that those guys still have those screw on devil horns. Like that was not just a thing invented for Jerry Springer or whatever, you know, 90s daytime talk shows that people apparently still get those or, you know, the fools that got it for Springer in the nineties didn't get it removed by now, I guess. Oh yeah. And, and like I said, that I see it, especially going to concerts, you see it every now and again where, yeah, you'll see the dude with like the, yeah, the horn implants or just the little nubby nubs to look like little horns. I mean, I <laughs> guess that's 
really no different. I mean, I guess there's some, but you, you do see like the extreme body modification still. And it's usually older guys that you could tell got these like in the nineties or early two thousands, like either like the, the forked tongue or of course, like, you know, I think more commonly the real dangly ass earlobes from having giant plates in their ears and yeah, or like or the all, tattooed eyeballs pierced Prince Albert. I'm seeing out there in the wild. Oh, you see mm-hmm. a lot of dicks swinging. <laughs> of course, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard to avoid them when they got all those uh, medallions hanging off of them. Well, I, I can actually fuck with these guys, these weird Satanists, a little bit more like the people who are very into Satan and they like him a little bit more than uh, like the people who are very into Satan, but they want him to sit on attack. You know, like I live in like a, <laughs> an incredibly religious area of, of the country somehow. And I, like we just had a... A columnist, one of our religion columnists, wrote like a big story about how like literal Satan can talk to you through social media and you have to like not be on social media all the time. Otherwise, literal Satan, a man named Satan will talk to you via social media. And uh, we're also just like we're clearing out all of our stuff because we're moving into a new place. And I found a file in my filing cabinet called like it was marked complaints. And I looked in there and one of them was like, Talking about, oh, you know, I don't like the way that you guys run the Archie comic or whatever it is. And and then the only other one in there was a big thing about how uh, Diablo Canyon, which I guess is like up in our mountains here, is like named that way because literal Satan lives there. So we should not do stories about that place. (laughs) All this other like it was like all this crazy nonsense. I actually found that today, oddly enough. I should have taken a picture. They try to make that claim despite the fact that we all know it's because local cartographers of the Central Valley region are all huge fans of the Diablo franchise of video games. You know? <laughs> I'm very excited for part four. They've been waiting for it a long time. Exactly. Um, yeah, but these complaints were from like 15 years ago or something. They've just been sitting around. But like, so like I can definitely, like if somebody wants to like wear devil horns, like that's way cooler than avoiding Twitter because you think Satan's going to send you a DM and believing that <laughs> to be actually real. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, as ridiculous as people that are way into Satan for the positive thing, the people that think, yeah, Satan is a real entity and he's going to do harm, like, you know, it, it, it takes all flavors, too. I mean, it's obviously usually Christians, but, I mean, there's all kinds of goofball religions that have some sort of literal devil. And, yeah, people that think, yeah, that the devil is, you know, coming to take your kids in the form of, you know, whatever it is, whether it's liberal politics or uh you know <laughs> gay culture or you know th- there's been all kinds of claims of like the devil working through various things and it's like jesus christ but i mean it's it's, it's a games. legitimate thing yeah like people think that there's a actual devil and he's out to corrupt your kids i mean we'll talk about it in a couple of these movies but yeah i mean you know the world of jack chick i mean you're familiar with that parker i know you've been reading a lot of him lately but that's that's a real world for a lot of people. <laughs> they think like mm-hmm. there's a actual devil out to uh, corrupt you and your children. Yeah, but it is a good scapegoat. Weird. I like. I like. I wish I was. I did have that scapegoat because like, oh, it wasn't me that uh, you know, drank all that beer and passed out. That was the devil that made me do it. <laughs> I wonder if that ever held up in court. It must have, right? In like the 1800s, like. If you oh, yeah. for drinking a bunch oh, yeah. of beer, like you just be like, yeah, the devil made me do it. People would be like, oh, all right. Yeah. Happens uh, to us all. Especially if it wasn't like a crime against the state or like another man or something. Like you could definitely beat your wife and say, oh, you know, the devil made me do it. I'm sure that would hold up in court <laughs> back then. 
I don't even oh, think yeah. you would need an excuse back then for that kind of thing. Well, yeah, I guess people would just be like, <laughs> maybe murder them. <laughs> yeah, you could get arrested for not beating your wife right now, back in the <laughs> olden days. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure many men have also used that excuse as, you know, a reason for cheating on their wives. Like, I love you, baby. Just, you know how the devil is after me. Well, it, it, it always may, tempting me. It may be, you know, the central plot line of one of the movies we'll, we'll be talking about later, yeah. as a matter of fact. Which, by the way, speaking of those devil horns, the implant style, what do you guys think about the non-implant devil horns? Just kind of curling your hair in a funny little devil horn manner? Do you like that? Yeah, I mean, it just depends on the context, but it can look cool, especially if you're yeah. doing it in a theatrical way. Yeah, maybe mm-hmm. if you're in some seminal British techno duo or something like this, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, well. Yeah, but yeah, so, well, I'm glad I'm glad we're in the satanic spirit, but uh, aside from worshiping the Dark Lord this month, what have you guys been into? It's been a, you know, full month since I talked to you guys. Been getting anything uh, crazy, I'm guessing. Between the two of you, you've seen some combination of the Barbenheimer uh, craze oh, that's yeah. sweeping theaters right now. I, have you seen both or one or neither of these uh, films, Barbie or Oppenheimer, yet? I've seen both. I I liked Barbie quite a bit and didn't really like Oppenheimer much at all. Um, oh. And Bowman, you, you've still only seen mm-hmm. the Barbie or what? Yeah, I saw Barbie, which was a masterpiece, and then I was thinking about seeing Oppenheimer over the weekend, but I saw Ninja Turtles instead, which is also very good, probably better oh. than Oppenheimer. So. Nice. You like the turtles? I thought it was really fun. Yeah, it was like super cute. The animation is a masterpiece. Uh, it's pretty funny. Um, so yeah, I thought it was fun. It was a lot better than I I kind of expected it to be. So, well, that's good to hear. Yeah. Yeah, I... I have I have seen Oppenheimer. I have not seen Barbie yet, so I feel like I've I've made the wrong choice in that, in that decision. <laughs> um, but I had a chance to see Oppenheimer on seventy millimeter up in Columbus with some friends, and yeah, I I didn't love it either. I thought it was there was I thought it was good performances. I thought there was actually some really good performances, in it, and I wouldn't be surprised if it won some uh, awards for those performances. Um, but, and it looked pretty good, uh, for what was there, but I, I thought it was pretty boring. It was way too long. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I liked some of the themes it explored, but it just felt like it took forever to get there. And it's not a bad movie by any means. Um, but yeah, just way too fucking long and too boring. Um, but, but still an intriguing, an intriguing watch, but yeah. Now I got to see Barbie because I that, I've heard nothing from everybody I've talked to. I've heard that's the better of the two. I mean, even though it's ridiculous to even be kind of comparing because they're wildly different films, but obviously they're the two biggest movies uh, this last month, and yeah, probably well, will be for this month as well. I think Barbie is on track to be the biggest movie of the year. You know, I don't think anything will unseat it. So, yeah, I can't imagine. Don't but, be the, yeah, you don't be the one guy that doesn't see it. You know. Mm-hmm. I know. Well, it's been fucking sold out, um, yeah. which is crazy. It's still like, so, well, here's a funny story. So, you know, um, the last Wednesday of every month, friend of the show, Justin does his uh, screenings here at the local theater. And he did a, a, a kind of a ghoul summer double feature this month where it was uh, eaten alive, which was Toby Hooper's next movie after, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Have you guys ever seen that one? Yeah, the, the Gator one. The Gator one, yeah. yeah. 
I have you ever seen that one, Parker? No, I have not. I've I've been wanting to. I think you'd like it. It's got Robert England in it in an earlier role, and it's it's very weird and crazy. But then he uh, the the second feature of it was Last House on Dead End Street, which we did mm-hmm. on the podcast many years ago, which is that kind of you know very low budget, almost pseudo snuff film, where a lot of people thought it was a snuff film for years until the director actually came forward i mean it's you know it's that you probably remember the guy that looks like bill Hader with a leather jacket sauna bodies wearing the uh it's got david hess like in Gre- it right no no you're thinking of last house oh yeah okay uh, uh house at the edge of the park house, the house of the park. edge yeah, of the park yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. last house in the street yeah I re- yeah the yeah, yeah pseudo cool or pseudo snuff film yeah I, I yeah, remember yeah. That. it had a lot of blackface that's what i remember about it oh there was there is blackface yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it was a very weird and uncomfortable <laughs> movie to watch with the crowd but i mean still fun nonetheless <laughs> but yeah there's a lot of mm-hmm. weird stuff in that movie yeah the chicken blackface getting whipped at the party the this the faux snuff stuff it's it's pretty wild flick but anyway, the reason I bring it up is because it was the two big movies, like events at the theater at the same time, were, were Barbie and this. And it was very obvious. And we're all hanging out in the lobby. It's very obvious who's there to see Barbie and who's there to see these two ghoul flicks. So, uh, yeah, it was a fun time at the theater, nonetheless. But a strange, you know, convergence of cultures. <laughs> Yeah, well, but yeah. It's, it's good, though, to, to hear that the cinema is, you know, even pulling in these kind of disparate audiences, you know, that there is still a, a marketplace for films to be exhibited and that it's, you know, people are into that and going out and seeing stuff. I, I like to hear that. Yeah, I do, too. And I mean, I think it's a, I think the thing that Barbie has going for it, obviously, I think it's a it's a it's a smart movie. I think Greta Gerwig, you know, is a good writer, director, and I think that brings in a lot of people that probably wouldn't see just kind of a generic Barbie movie where this is obviously something that kind of, you know, will draw on multiple audiences and obviously Barbie, just the product itself has multi-generational appeal. I mean, like at the screening that I was just talking about, most of the people in the audience to go see it were older, um, like women in their fifties and sixties, um, and, and like people our age and stuff. So, and, and granted, this is like a, you know, urban, kind of art house theater so i'm sure it's different at a lot of the you know simplexes but i think it is drawing a pretty wide swath of audiences and i think that's another thing that it has going for it is just a lot of appeal for a lot of demographics yeah and it, i mean it's perfect counter programming i mean there there couldn't really be a movie that is less like a marvel superhero movie which i think is the thing that has dominated the box office for so long to the point that people wanted something different and this is as different as you can get i think yeah for sure and i think like i said it helps that there's kind of this whole buzz around it and people are like dressing up to go to the theater you know dressing up like in pink and in different kinds of like i don't know make an event i think that's what people want it's like people will go to the movies and they will show up but you got to make it you know worth going out for you got to make it an event you got to make it fun I, i think that's what's kind of missing in some of these uh, and i I think they try you you know it's something that you can't really calculate too much either because i think they try to manufacture hype and manufacture kind of some you know social relevance around some of the stuff online it just it it has to be you know i don't know it has to be organic i feel like so yeah hopefully they'll learn some lessons from this although i don't know it seems like everything's so fucked up right now between the strike and all these yeah you know just 
I don't know. It, entertainment, especially the movie industry, is in a very weird place right now. And it, it'll be interesting to see how they come out the other end of this. Because between COVID and streaming and piracy and the writer's strike and AI and just ever you know all the shit going against it, it's like the fact that any movies get made, let alone good ones, is, you know, <laughs> it's it, I don't know. It's a tough prospect. But hopefully... Things will come out good on the other side, and we'll end up with some some good entertainment as a result, and people actually getting you know paid for their work and all that fun stuff. But yeah, we'll see. Yeah, that was one of the more interesting parts about seeing Barbie in the theater. Here was you know the the movie starts, or, or actually before the movie starts, you get that Nicole Kidman AMC thing, which people are still applauding for. They they still love it i guess which <laughs> what baffles me who, who who likes that people stand I mean, in los angeles they stand up and give it like a standing ovation are you serious yeah and it's been going it on ironic for it's 100 it's gotta ironic. be ironic yeah and it sucks it's not funny okay. it's it's mostly younger people i guess but anyways people are plotting that then you know uh screen goes black the warner brothers logo comes up people are booing that booing the wb logo and then the Barbie logo comes up and people are applauding again. So it was just this kind of roller coaster in like five seconds of like emotions, you know, but people are, yeah, it's, I, I don't think that there is any kind of resolution anytime soon. People are heated and, you know, they have strong stances, you know, on the writing and performing side that I, you know, that I fully identify with and, and understand, but I don't see, anybody at the production level, any of these studio guys being sympathetic in the least, it seems like. So I think we're kind of fucked for a while. Yeah. Well, and it's crazy too, because it does feel like it's just kind of a microcosm of just business in general in, in the United yeah. States right now, because I mean, you know, as, as sympathetic as I am to actors and writers, I mean, I also kind of figure, think, you know, Hey, just be lucky that you have a union that is willing to stand up and you can go on strike and you can make news. It's like a lot of people in the workforce are getting, you know, their necks stepped on by corporations getting wildly underpaid and overutilized and overworked. And they don't have the uh, benefit of a union or a, you know, high profile job that they could go on strike, you know, for, or, you know, so, and, and like, you know, it, it like I said, it does mirror a lot of the same, circumstances where you know ceos and yeah uh, people are raking in massive uh you know earnings while you know people's wages are stagnant so well it's, I don't know. it's Hope- the same company amazon that is depriving its writers and actors of profits that is also abusing its factory workers its warehouse workers you know what i mean so you know of course it's all these companies work in the same way and we're now reaching a point where like these media companies are so massive and have their fingers in so many different pies that they're able to just spread their exploitation, you know, across the entire country's workforce. It feels like, so it sucks. Fuck these CEOs. Let's get the uh, executive salaries down and let's, let's pay the workers. Yeah. You want to talk about the real Satan, man. It's, it's the CEOs, man. <laughs> anyway, You mean the devil? Yes. The <laughs> devil. All right. Well, enough. Yeah. politics let's get back into the spooky world of satan any well, anything else uh you guys uh, have been up to recently you want to mention just real quick i saw SummerSlam. 
It was pretty boring. Can't recommend it. If, if you missed it, good job. I mean, a couple small highlights, but mostly pretty boring. Um, and then I also picked up for Nintendo Switch, I got Pikmin 4. You guys know about these Hell Pikmin yeah. games? Are you fans of the Pikmins? The, the I've never played sounds, them, but they look fun. Yeah, the title sounds vaguely familiar. It's like little tiny dudes, right? You, know, you got to collect them or something? I don't know. Yeah, well, so <laughs> it is kind of funny that the name is basically Pokemon, that it seems like Nintendo wanted to create a another Pokemon, and so they're like, let's create Pikmin. But yeah, it's like a series that I've always been kind of interested in. Never really got around to playing it until uh, this one came out, part four. And I always thought it would be like real relaxing based on like the, you know, like the trailers <laughs> I've seen and stuff. Like it looks kind of like an animal crossing or something. You got these cute little creatures, you go collect them. That sounds like fun and relaxing. It's intense. It's a hectic ass game. It's, you know, it's like this real time strategy thing where you're collecting these little plant alien creature guys and, using them for various tasks. It's kind of like that game Lemmings, if you ever played Lemmings way back in the day. It's actually oh, yeah, totally. a lot like that, but <laughs> in like a 3D world and very colorful. So it's cool. It's um, Chigeru Miyamoto is the guy that uh, made it, you know, the, the same guy that made, uh, you know, your Marios and your Zeldas and yeah. all your big games. So it's, it's well, fun. Cool. Yeah, it's got that weird like, kind of Nintendo style. Yeah, I like that you, much like Bowman... You like to relax during entertainment because <laughs> one thing I know about you and your video game preference is that you 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 do look and seek out relaxing video games like your Animal Crossings and Stardew Valleys, and I like that. You're like, don't give me anything too intense. I like to relax during my video game playing. It, I like, to, yeah. If, I mean, do you ever play like uh, like just like fishing games? <laughs> I mean, honestly, in Stardew Valley, a lot of times like harvesting plants is too stressful. And so it's got a fishing sub game, and I'll just I'll fish for weeks in Stardew Valley. Nice. That fishing well. in Stardew Valley is hard. I almost rage quit trying to learn how to <laughs> fucking fish in that game. It was pissing me off so much. I got to, you know, like you said to relax, and yeah. here the fucking mini game for fishing was pissing me off so badly. I haven't gone back to it. I installed immediately. I mean, you got to be careful not to be fishing like, you know, out of your depths. Like if you're going to a place where there's really big fish and you haven't like leveled up and they're just going to be snapping your line and that's that's not a good time. But I think if you progress through, you know, the the different stages of fishing in the way that you're supposed to, it's it's pretty easy in that game. It's nothing at all like the excitement of Sega bass fishing for Dreamcast, which I was oh, yes. a pretty big fan of as a kid. Mm-hmm. Did you have the Oh yeah, the, the controller. The controller. Oh yeah. yeah, dude. Of course. Yeah, I spent way too much time playing that stupid ass game on the Dreamcast. That and Tony Hawk um, well, were pretty much all I played on the Dreamcast. Two great soundtracks. I mean, Sega Bass yeah. Fishing. I think only had the one song, but it was a great song. <laughs> well, very nice. Um, well, you guys want to check in what kind of uh, fishing video games the folks out there in Junk Food Dinner have been playing this month in this month's segment of Junk Mail? Oh, hell yeah. Hell yeah. Let's get those pickled ice men on the blower. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As we say in the biz. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, well, the first one we've got uh, is from our man Tom in Adelaide. Hey, guys. It's Tom. Uh Welcome back, Kevin, if I have called in time. If not, then... You did. Hey, the two of you. 
Uh, yeah, I just wanted to call and say I went and saw Talk to Me at the uh, cinema oh. and really, really enjoyed it. Obviously, I'm a little biased because it's shot in Adelaide and, you know, it's basically an Adelaide horror movie. Uh, but it's been picked up by A24 and uh, I really, really thought it was good. And I think you guys should check it out too. It's something a little different, you know, and definitely worth checking out. Uh, yeah, please do so. And, you know, check out shit from my hometown and uh, support that stuff. Okay, cool. Uh, hope the uh, satanic uh, episode is going well. Cool. <laughs> Take care, guys. Bye-bye. All right. Well, yeah, thank you, Tom, for calling in. Always a pleasure to hear from you. Love hearing from old Tom down there in Adelaide. And, yeah, thanks for the recommend. Uh, talk to me currently in theaters right now, at least for me. I know it's in my local theaters. Um, came out, I think, last week. Um, and it's, yeah, an A24 horror movie. Um, I saw the trailer. I remember there's a like a disembodied hand in a lot of it. Looks like there's a lot of like a pretty young cast. Um, I don't know. I thought this was like a, a young person's horror movie, and I'm not a young person, so I was a, kind of uh, not dissuaded, but you know, just like ah, I can wait for this. But now that time re- recommends it, that's exactly what I said when that came on. But uh, now that Tom recommended, I, di- I didn't know it was from Adelaide, so uh, yeah, now I'm intrigued. Now maybe I will go check that out. Maybe see it right after I see Barbie. I feel like this would be up a Bowman's alley, you know, it, it being teen centric, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. I'm very young. Um, <laughs> when it comes to these kind of horror movies. So, so yeah, I definitely want to see this. I, yeah, this was another one I was thinking about seeing over the weekend uh, and I saw Ninja Turtles instead, but I, I think maybe I have to go kind of far to see it. I might have to go to Fresno or something since there's only one movie theater in my town now. So, uh, but I might, maybe I'll do that this weekend or maybe I'm going to Vegas next week. So maybe I'll check it out then. There you go. You're going to Vegas uh, next what? week. Uh, well, I'm I'm going Sunday. Man, are you gonna swing Sunday? Swing by my place and pick up all this crap you left at my place. All these all these books I got stacked up on my desk. I thought maybe you would like to read the book. I mean, it's like a, there's a story about Kappas in there. I thought maybe you would want to read it. Oh, maybe I didn't know that. Watch that. I thought maybe you would want to watch that DVD of um, Burning Love, starring Ken Marino from oh. the state. Now you're not invited. I'm going to take advantage of this <laughs> offer. <laughs> no, I, I think I'll be down there um, after, when I go to Joshua Tree next month. I think I'll probably be stopping by. Unannounced. I wasn't going to announce it. I was just going to stop by your house. Real weird and creepy. Just look in the windows, you know, stuff like that. But okay. you ruined the surprise. Uh, I'm sure that I will forget between now and then. So you still have an opportunity to surprise me. Okay. Uh, speaking of surprises... We got a surprise here from our main man. Hello, guys. I haven't talked to you on forever. This is Kyle from Kentucky. 
I just was calling in to say, uh, see how everybody's doing. I've, I've really been loving the Jet Food Supper. Oh. I need, I need as much Sean Byron and Parker Bowman and, and as, as I can, as much of them as I can get, cause I oh. love listening to them. <laughs> but, uh, I, I, I did that and I'm not going to act upon it cause I'm, I'm a salesman now. I'm not a filmmaker, but uh, somebody should make a movie about Richie Blackmore from Deep Purple. <laughs> I mean, like, and, and, you know, Richie Blackmore's Rainbow. Like, you know, he was even big in the United States, but he was, like, hella big in England. I just think that's, that's something that we don't, you know, and he's still living today. You can talk to him. I just think somebody should do a documentary about him because, like, everybody, you know, so many artists you, you listen to, from, you know, I'm old, so, you know, I'm talking like Billy Corgan and fucking Kurt Cobain. They're like, yeah, I love fucking, yeah. <laughs> but, guys, uh, you've been loving the show. Uh, keep up a good work. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thank you, Kyle, for calling in, even though uh, it sounds like you like the show better without me than with me, so I don't know how to take that. Uh, <laughs> But no, uh, always good to hear from you, and glad to hear you're doing good. Sounds like you're doing good. I love the enthusiasm. Uh, Yeah, I agree. Richie Blackmore, legend, great guitarist, love Deep Purple. Um, I'm just so-so on Rainbow. I don't know. I haven't really delved too far into the Rainbow discography, I think, to make a educated. But obviously Deep Purple, huge. I love them. Um, and like you said, very influential. I think anybody that uh, plays heavy or hard rock music, I mean, I think they probably list Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, Zeppelin, obviously big influences. But yeah, I think Richie Blackmore's uh, guitar work is super influential. And I would totally watch a documentary uh, on him. But yeah, you guys have any thoughts on uh, on Richie Blackmore? Not specifically, but I do feel like pretty much any musician who has recorded music within the 20th century probably should have a document. Like, let's get documentaries for all these guys because generally, <laughs> like, their lives are fascinating. Uh, oh, yeah. You want to talk about relaxing during entertainment, hearing old dudes talk about their recording sessions. That's the most relaxing shit in the world. <laughs> yeah. So I'm down, yeah. Oh, and I have to imagine Richie Blackmore's got. Yeah, stories for days between being in deep because Deep Purple was like, you know, they they were in the sixties, the seventies, eighties. Yeah, they went deep. Um, yeah, and I'm sure they saw all kinds of shit between the drugs and the sex and oh yeah, that guy's got stories for days. I'm sure. I would like to know the story about why a guy named Black Moore is in a band called Deep Purple. Should and Rainbow, deep black? <laughs> yeah, the most colorful yeah. band name of them all. Yeah, what's going on here? Why is this guy so obsessed? Trying to compensate for something with lack of color there in his name. Yeah. I bet when he takes his shirt off, he's just black and white underneath. You know, <laughs> just a grayscale. It's like that Spinal Tap, none more black. I never saw that movie. Oh, Are you serious? Yeah. What the... Well, what the... That's what I'm picking for Ghoul Summer next week, then, just to make you watch it. <laughs> Please do. I want to make you smell the glove. I don't know you'll, what that means. You'll get that joke later. 
right. Well, all right. That's all Any, the voicemails for this week. All right. Well, thank you for calling in. Um, and thank you for listening. And if you would like to be one of, one of these folks that calls in and hear your voice on the show, give us a call on the Junk Food Dinner voicemail line at 347-746-JUNK. That's 347-746-5865. Leave us a message. We'll play it on the show. We'll talk about it. Uh, so hit us up. All right, that being said, let's get into some nerd news. From the global resources of Junk Food Dinner Worldwide, it's time for Nerd News. Uh, the first piece of nerd news that I have said, nerd news, and I'm sure it's news that everybody has already heard and has, uh, you know, reacted to in their own way but that is of course the death of none other than paul rubens uh who passed away on july 30th of this year uh it was a surprising death to a lot of us as uh it sounds like paul had been privately battling cancer for the past six years but had not made it public um and then so his death kind of came as a surprise i think for a lot of people who didn't even know he was sick much like you know kind of like norm mcdonald last year. Um, but I think this one hit a lot of people, especially folks our age or a little bit older, um, or a little bit younger, you know, people just generally around, you know, our age in their thirties, forties and fifties, because, you know, uh, Pee Wee Herman, um, was such a iconic figure, I think for a lot of us, I know for me, especially, I mean, I'm sure you guys as well, but you know, I watched Pee-wee's Playhouse incessantly as a kid. That was like one of my first favorite shows of all time. And um, I just really love the aesthetic of it. And even to this day, like I, I see so much of like what I like in Pee-wee's Playhouse. It's like just everything from the kitschy kind of, um, you know, sensibility to the wacky humor to the mixed media to the just everything about that show. Uh, was amazing and uh, like I said I've gone back and watched it as an adult and a lot of children's programming does not hold up when you go back and rewatch it through the lens of a an adult you know like you try to watch an episode of He-Man or you go back and watch uh, the Snorks or some shit and you're like oh my god what the fuck was I thinking as a kid but yeah this is one show that really holds up and like I said I think just because one it was the most expensive children's program at the time I don't know if anything surpassed it but I think it was you know, a lot of money in it and it shows. Cause like I said, there's a lot of cool stuff in there between claymation, animation, puppetry, um, you know, costuming, the set design, just the whole thing is just, it looks great and it's a lot of fun and not to say anything about, um, the films, Pee Wee's, uh, big adventure, of course, stone cold classic. I don't think there's anybody. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever heard anybody, talk shit about Pee-wee's Big Adventure, at least, uh, you know, you might be like, eh, it's okay, but I don't think I've heard anyone say, I don't like Pee-wee's Big Adventure, unless you're a fucking lunatic. Mm-hmm. Um, love the HBO stage version um, of the Pee-wee show that he did before Pee-wee's Playhouse. Um, I didn't see that until after the fact. I actually saw that as an adult on HBO, like when HBO On Demand became a thing, that was something you could pull up, and I was like, love that. Um, and I, I, I still go to bad for Big Top Pee Wee. I know a lot of people don't like that because one, it's nowhere near as good as Big Adventure. Because of course not. How could it be? Like Big Adventure is a masterpiece. 
you know, they didn't have Tim Burton directing Big Top Pee Wee. It's, you know, it doesn't have a lot of the same iconic stuff that Big Adventure does, but I still think there's stuff to like in it. It's not a great movie, um, but I think it's way better than people give it credit for. I think people automatically just diss it because it's not Big Adventure, but go back and watch it. I think it's there's a lot of fun, a lot of cool performances in that. Susan Tyrell's in it, Chris Christopherson, Penelope Ann Miller, um, and it's got, you know, a lot of circus stuff. If you're, if you're, like, I watched the shit out of it as a kid, and I think that also, um, you know, it's one of the reasons why I love, like, you know, circus and carnival culture to this day is that movie. Um, but then, of course, you know, he, he, there's the stuff that he did in The Groundlings. There's his post Pee Wee stuff that he did. There's the pre Pee Wee stuff that he did, like appearing in, like, Blues Brothers and Cheech and Chong movies, Meatballs 2 being the voice of the flight of the navigator thing he's in back to the beach uh and then like i said the stuff after peewee like the you know appearing in batman returns and buffy the vampire slayer um and then you know stuff like uh, mystery men and blow and then of course you know stuff on tv that he would pop up on from time to time um i think like fairly recently he was in stuff like 30 rock and um um portlandia and you know stuff like that and so he was just always around and and i think a lot of again people our age just really connected with him just uh you know his playful spirit his sense of just whimsy and um silliness and i think it gave a kids a lot of uh a lot of kids our age uh, and a a person look up to and a, a weirdo hero you know someone that gave you permission to be a goofball and to be weird so obviously uh, we're all going to miss him, but do you guys have any thoughts about uh, the death of, of Paul Rubens? Yeah, I thought, you know, as soon as I heard that he died from cancer, I said, can't this guy do anything without Andy Kaufman doing it first? This is crazy. Oh, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just J. King. I'm J. King. Obviously, I'm J. King. I love Pee Wee. I love him so much. That I was just a J. King. Um, yeah, it's super sad. Yeah, and, you know, like he's, you know, he bounced back. uh from something that could have like totally killed his career because that's how talented he was. And that's like how, how much everybody loved him, you know? And like, he's just a guy who just wanted to make, I mean, seemingly, you know, I mean, I didn't know him, but I mean, just, I mean, based on the Pee Wee character, like it's very obvious, like anybody who would have created that character is just a person who wants other people to be happy in life, you know? And so I feel like that, that just kind of came out and that's why, you know, after that, his, his 90s scandal, why he, he bounced back. Um, you know, I feel like that would have probably killed anybody else's career, but he's like just a ball of pure fun and energy. I'm back, um, baby. I don't need this shit. Exactly. So, um, and then even when he wasn't Pee-wee, you know, like you were saying, he's very talented. I mean, that Buffy the Vampire Slayer, like, you know, that's the scene, his scene where he's dying is like the scene everybody remembers, you know, when you bring why up that, that movie. Dracula, for God's sakes. <laughs> like so you know he stole that he's you know he, he steals the show whenever he's on something so um i mean the, the, even the fact that you bring up batman begins i mean he's in like literally batman two returns. seconds of that oh yeah yeah batman returns he would have been really good in batman begins though but yeah batman returns like he's in two seconds and everybody knows he's in it everybody remembers him being in it um well that's got a lot that of good. yeah that got a lot of attention because i think that was the first appearance he made after the the masturbation scandal outside of the, so. uh, the MTV movie. Awards right. Or whatever. I mean, yeah. Like his first on screen role 
since that. But yeah, but yeah, I, I think it's odd that I mean, not odd, but it's kind of coincidental that he and Sinead O'Connor passed away around the same time because I feel like those are both characters that had like scandals in the '90s, like with her ripping that uh, picture of the Pope and Pee Wee Herman getting busted jerking off. Like that, in retrospect, I think a lot of people probably look back on and say yeah we were probably as a society too hard on these people (laughs) like they Mm -hmm. really didn't do anything that bad like i mean especially in Sinead o'connor's case like i think everyone should agree now that like yeah you should rip up a picture of a pope because he's a goddamn monster and like allowed Mm -hmm. child molestation in the catholic church for and continues to do so and with Wee herman i mean i think a lot of people had this opinion back then i know it seemed like my parents and at least several other people in, in the circles in 1991 that I was in were like, what's the big deal? Like, this is a porno theater. It's not like he was in, you know, like a screening of, you know, home alone jerking his dick, you know, like he was at <laughs> an adult theater in fucking Florida. Like that's where you're, I mean, yeah, back and, before and the unless internet, you're the guy that has to clean it up, you don't need to be angry about it. You know, yeah, if, if you're on the janitorial mm-hmm. squad for the theater, you got a right to be angry, you know, but otherwise. Yeah. I think part of what made that such a big deal is that mugshot where he looks like a Satan, you know, like if, if the mugshot well, would have just been peewee, like I think people would have been like, ah, he's just having fun. Well, and didn't he, wasn't he rocking the, the long hair and, and yeah. goatee because of the Buffy role? I mean, wasn't, I think it was, that's why oh. he had long hair and, and the mustache during that time but yeah because people so. didn't realize that he was yeah, playing you know a, a vampire in buffy They're like oh man he looks creepy yeah he's got long hey, hair some sort of pervert. <laughs> that's what they said at the time yeah yeah well i mean it's yeah, yeah it's it's super sad I, I think that you know peewee's big adventure was probably the first movie that i like fell like deeply in love with you know that like meant a oh, lot yeah. to me um and yeah, I'll, I'll always uh, remember my times watching the show and watching that movie. And, and Absolutely. Maybe I should go back and rewatch Big Top Pee Wee. Yeah, like I said, go, go right. Go in with you know tempered expectations because it's like I said, nowhere near as good as Big Adventure, which I agree is just a fucking absolute masterpiece. But it's it's got things that I think you can like, um, especially if you like Pee Wee. And I would also. Uh, definitely recommend, and I'm sure Byron, you've already done this many times well before his death, but going back and uh, watching his appearances on Letterman throughout the years are always a treat. Yeah, and I, I haven't yet bit the bullet on watching, you know, Don Giller, as always, has the compilation that you need that's like two and a half hours of all the appearances, and, and I have not sat down and, and rewatched that since the death, but um, you know, I've certainly seen a lot of those appearances o- over the past few years, and they were always fun. So, yeah, yeah. Well, R.I.P. Paul, aka Pee Wee, you will be missed for sure. Well, if we can transition now into another Death Day dedication, uh, <laughs> shout out to the great Billy Friedkin who passed away. Yeah, uh, acclaimed director of um, The Exorcist, The French Connection, Sorcerer, Cruising. To live and die in LA, uh, controversially, yeah. um, and others, which I have not seen, but I've seen all five of those. And I mean, they're among my five favorite movies. I think they're all absolutely incredible. 
I guess, sorcerer the most among them for me. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're all great. And it does make me want to dig into some of his lesser known flicks, you know, now that the man's gone. Um, Hollywood Reporter had a funny little story uh, in his obit here. You know, they say the Oscar winner never played by the rules, often to his own detriment. Uh, when Alfred Hitchcock told him off for not wearing a tie on the set, because uh, I guess Friedkin had directed a 1965 episode of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. Um, oh, yeah. That's so, one of his first uh, gigs. Yeah, so there was some kind of um, encounter between Hitchcock and Friedkin on the set where, you know, uh, Friedkin wasn't wearing a tie and, and Hitchcock was pissed. And then later Friedkin would get his revenge. Uh, the night that he won the DGA award for the French Connection, he passed Hitchcock on his way to the podium and yanked off his snap-on bow tie and quipped, how do you like the tie, Hitch?" So fun little story between these two guys. Um, but yeah, I mean, great director, famously kind of a crank, famously kind of mean to our good friend, Mark Fredo. And for that, I guess I'll never forgive him, but uh, man, those fucking movies are great. And uh, you know, may- maybe it is true that the meanest guys make the best movies. I, th- I think that might actually be true. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Um, but yeah, obviously very talented director. Um, I love the French connection, love the exorcist, love sorcerer, love cruising, love to live and die in LA. Um, although first, uh, Friedkin I ever saw blue chips in the theater, Shaquille O'Neal day one. Okay. Got the trading cards and everything to prove it. Um, (laughs) not a great movie, probably not one that he's super proud of, but, uh, that's, I do have, uh, fond memories of seeing that in the theater in 94 uh when i was just catching that shaquille o'neal fever uh which (laughs) would carry me through most of the 90s and i can Um, imagine kevin moss in the lobby of this movie theater playing nba jam screaming boom shakalaka during the screening i I can see it all now in my mind i think i even Mm -hmm. wore a shaquille o'neal t-shirt to the screening of blue chips just in case there was any doubt that i was a true Shaq fan um but maybe also a Chicago Bulls pair of like basketball shorts because you know the, the Bulls were everywhere at the time too. Yeah, true. No, this was because this is when it was like, oh, Michael Jordan, yesterday's news, dude. Shaq, that's the future. But yeah, yeah, probably still probably still had some some Bulls stuff <laughs> hanging out. Well, but and, yeah, no, it's true though. I mean, Michael Jordan. Do you see him killing the insurance commercial game? I don't. <laughs> I don't think mm-hmm. he needs to. Well, maybe that's true. But yeah, he also did some cool TV stuff. Like you mentioned, he did the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. He also directed uh, an episode of the 1985 Twilight Zone. He directed an episode of Tales from the Crypt uh, on a dead man's chest, which is a good one. Um, but yeah, obviously, yeah, fun uh fun stories about him being an asshole and a cantankerous old dude, which, you know, I think we all can relate to as we get older. Um, but yeah, obviously classic director, some all time bangers under his belt. So yeah, definitely RAP. Yeah. Uh, I just listened to his interview with Brady Stanellis, uh, that Brady Stanellis did for his podcast. Um, it was, they did it a couple of months ago, but I just listened to it this week, oddly enough. Um, yeah, I like this guy a lot too. I also like the movie Bug a great deal, which I don't think gets enough love. Uh, it's probably secretly my well, not not even secretly. It's definitely my favorite after The Exorcist. 
of his movies Ooh, that I've seen. I, really? Okay. I've not seen that. It's really good. It's really like paranoid and yeah, it's good. So yeah, definitely a sad one. And, he, and he's one of these guys like, seems like he's always around. He's still doing interviews. He's still doing Q and A's and stuff. So it's, you know, it's not like he retired 10 years ago and no one's ever heard of him. So it's one of those ones that's a little bit more, more shocking. Well, yeah, I think he's got a, a movie that was supposed to come out or is scheduled to come out next month called the Kane mutiny court martial. Um, so uh-huh. yeah, I mean, he was still, still making movies up until his death. Yeah. Yeah. I well, mean, that was speaking a, of making movies. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, oh no, please go ahead. I was just going to say that was, that's his first movie that he did since killer Joe in 2011. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh wow. Uh, well I've got a movie about a killer Joe in the news here. Oh, yeah? uh, it turns out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, scream seven, which is being made now. Uh, the radio silence guys are not going to be doing the movie. The guys who did uh, the previous two screams. Uh, and instead, Christopher Landon, my man, the director of the two Happy Death Day movies, as well as Freaky, uh, is going to step in to direct. Um, I think this is great news. As a young man who likes horror movies for young people, like the screams, um, I thought that the last two screams kind of sucked. Uh, yeah. I know I'm in the minority, but... Uh, they were shitty and I really like Christopher Landon's movies. So I'm excited for this. Uh, do you guys care at all about this? I mean, I don't share your same enthusiasm, but this seems like a, a natural choice. You know what I mean? Like yeah. based on those two movies, the, the happy death day and the freaky. Uh, yeah. That sounds, seems like a kind of guy that knows his way around like a, a teen horror movie. So yeah, I, cause I like you, I, I haven't seen them in their entireties, but I have caught portions of those new Scream movies on cable or on uh, streaming, and yeah, they suck. I did not care for them at all. <laughs> um, I, like it was to the point where, like, I was like, "Yeah, I'm gonna watch this new Scream movie," and I, I think I got like 20 minutes in. I was like, "I can't fucking tolerate this," and I got to turn <laughs> it off. So, yeah, I mean, I guess anything to go in a new direction or. You know, here's an idea. How about we just make a different horror movie? But you know, I get it. You gotta have that. Gotta have that marquee value. Kevin Moss is over here telling Scream to scram. Hey, get out of here, Scream! <laughs> We've had enough. Fucking Volume Seven. I was kind of interested in that last one. Like when I saw the trailers, I was like, you know what? I I would like a good Scream in my life. And so I've been trying to go back and rewatch the other ones in anticipation that I will eventually see this newish one that came out, what, six months ago or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But they're bad. Like even the old ones are bad. Like two is pretty bad. Three is fucking terrible. So I'm struggling to, to even get through this series. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that, yeah. the, you know, it d- does not get better from here after part three. So um, a new direction, like Kevin Moss said, maybe that's what they need. And, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm open to it, I guess. But again, like all of these franchises and, and IP based movies, it's like, I don't know. It's, it's kind of exhausting at a certain point. And, and you do wish that people could just come up with new ideas. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, one other thing that I did want to mention real quick is that, uh, if you're a big fan of the Bruce Lee film, enter the dragon, uh, it is celebrating its 50th anniversary 
this month. And in celebration, there's a couple things that you can get excited for. Mainly a brand new 4K restoration of the film, uh, which is going to be released on you know, um, UHD, 4K disc, and Blu-ray. Uh, you can get a standard version of it, you know, just like a standard, um, you know, single disc version of it. There's also a 50th anniversary limited collector's edition that comes with a lot of accoutrement, lobby cards, uh, posters, and all kinds of crapola, but that's like a hundred bucks. Uh, but if you just want a single, you know, just uh, multi-format disc version you can get that as well uh, but if you want to see it on the big screen you can also do that as well this month um, fathom events is doing two showings of the film uh, nationwide in the participating theaters that you can check out on sunday august 13th or wednesday august 16th um, so check out fathom events for that i think you know i love enter the dragon it's one of my uh, first loves when it comes to martial arts movies. And, you know, I think it's, you know, kind of ground zero for a lot of folks when it comes to getting into the martial arts genre. Um, and, you know, introducing you to Bruce Lee. And, you know, obviously it's a kind of a, a big influence on things that we loved in our childhood, like Mortal Kombat and things like that. So it's, it's a huge one for me. I, I love the movie ever since I was a boy. Um, I remember renting it and watching it. I was one of the first DVDs I owned when DVDs were new, watching the hell out of it in college. So I love this movie. I'm looking forward to seeing this new 4K restoration of the film. I definitely want to check it out on the big screen at one of these Fathom events. I don't think I've ever seen this movie. No, I've I've seen this. I've definitely seen this on the big screen, whether the drive-in or the theater sometime. But uh, I'll definitely see it again. Um, but what do you guys think? Do you love Enter the Dragon? And are you going to participate in any of this 50th anniversary uh, celebration in one way or another. I do love Enter the Dragon. I mean, it like you said, it probably is kind of like the, you know, the basic bitch pick when it comes to Bruce Lee movies, but it's still my favorite of them. I mean... Oh, yeah. It's entertaining it's, as hell. Yeah, it's the one that's got John Saxon. It's the one that's got Bolo. It's got the cool fight in the Hall of Mirrors at the end, and who doesn't yeah. love a fight in the Hall of Mirrors? Um, Jim Kelly... Yeah, of course. Yeah. And um, just a fun tone to it. It, it. it feels like a video game. So, you know, it, it makes sense right. that Mortal Kombat would would rip it off so much. Um, yeah, I'm, I've seen this probably 20 times in my life and I'll I'll be excited to see it uh, a 21st. Yeah, I like this movie. Um, I'm not in love with it, but maybe I'll check out this Fathom events. Maybe. Maybe I was just grumpy the first time I saw it or something. Maybe I'll love it. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's a good movie. Yeah, especially now that you're all into this meditation. Maybe, you know, Bruce Lee's speech about Eastern mysticism at the, the top of the movie will appeal to you. Maybe that's going to connect with you now. Maybe so. Maybe John Saxon's fighting style where he just punches people in the dick is like a metaphor <laughs> for, for, for Zazen meditation. Well, and there's also that scene where Bruce Lee fishes the little goldfish out of the percolator. Oh, yeah, I do like that part. I, I like that part a lot where uh, Bruce Lee grabs the nunchucks and then he says, It's time for the percolator. <laughs> it's time for the percolator. It's time for the percolator. It's my favorite part. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> Before we take a break to get into the movies, uh, we figured that we would announce as everybody's been waiting around for, as everybody's been waiting on pins and needles, they got pins and needles, bated breath, 
to know about the JFD meetup that we've been teasing. And I think the plan, or the, not even I think the plan, as of right now, this very moment, is that the meetup will be uh, in Cincinnati, Ohio. Oh. oh. <laughs> March 20, I think it's 22nd through 24th. Um, we've got time to figure that out if that's incorrect, but it's something like that. 23rd to 25th, something in there. The, like the last week of March. Um, at the horror, we're going to go party at the horror hound, uh, convention in Cincinnati. It'll be a fun time. We'll all eat skyline chili. Um, I think that coincides with our anniversary actually, which is cool. The show's anniversary. That's a lot of fun. So, so that's, that's the plan. Buy your plane tickets, buy your chili dog ingredients. That's where we're going to be partying. You guys, you guys are going to come out to that. You guys going to make it out there to that? You're asking well, I, me or, or you're asking the listener? <laughs> I'm asking you guys. I'll see <laughs> if I can travel that far. But Yeah, and I'm already there. I'll be waiting there between now and then. Okay, that makes sense. All right. That's Just a lot me, of me and Lance Henriksen smoking cigs on the sidewalk outside. Come <clears> find <throat> us. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Well, all right. They haven't annou- they've announced one guest so far. It's Nick Carter. Oh, Nick Cannon? Nick Cannon's going to be there. So, and of course us. So I think it'll be a fun time. The funnest time. Yeah. Yeah, It should be a party. And the most special of guests. Big Dick Daddy from Cincinnati. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) We're not going to tell you who that is, but. But his attendance is confirmed. (laughs) Yeah. Something tells me we'll find out over the weekend who that is. It's going to be a wild weekend. Mm -hmm. Tune into Ghoul Summer to find out who it is. Yeah. So bring you long telephone cords, bring your copies of species. Kevin will sign them and Maybe. it's going to be a fun, fun time. You're not going to sign anybody's copy of species. No, I will. I'll sign every species you got. <laughs> I'm going to bring you my copy of species to sign. All right. Yep. Send me those species. That's the news. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, yeah, uh, more to come on that. So, uh, and if you've got questions, we'll give more answers as as it gets closer but yeah that's the plan for right now so start asking off work start making your travel arrangements um we'll try to figure out where everyone wants to stay so maybe we can all kind of stay and take over one apart uh you know hotel in cincinnati and um mm-hmm. make a lot of trouble um, so yeah we'll keep you posted on that um but yeah so we're going to take a quick satanic break and when we come back we are going to get into our first devil themed film of the evening and that is cabin in the sky not cabin in the woods cabin in the sky from 1943 so stick around I forgive 
Cause I can't forget you mm, You got me in between The devil and the deep blue sea I ought to cross you all my limbs But when you come knocking on my door Fate seems to give my heart a twist I come running back for more I should hate you But mama, I guess instead I love you You've got me in between No devil and no deep blue Oh, you little devil to Junk Food Dinner, the first movie on our Satan-themed show tonight is going to be Cabin in the Sky from 1943, uh, directed by Vincente 
Minnelli, uh, father of Liza. And this is a comedic musical movie from MGM based on a Broadway show and with a completely African-American cast. Uh, And it turns out that 1943 was kind of a banner year for all black musicals. Uh, It looks like Fox had their own as well. Uh, The very good stormy weather, actually, from Fox in 1943, which starred uh, Lena Horne, who appears in this movie as well. And actually, there had been um, some other prior examples of all black musicals uh, before this, and there would be a few uh, more in the years to come. Uh, In the year 1929, uh, you had two, in fact, uh, Hearts in Dixie and Hallelujah both came out that year. Uh, In the year 1937, they actually released an all black singing cowboy movie called Harlem on the Prairie. Uh, which is kind of hard to believe these days that there would be an all-black singing cowboy movie in 1937. Uh, and then later in the 40s, you know, after this, you had things like Beware, Jiven, Bebop, Boarding House Blues, Killer Diller, not Killer Driller, but Killer Diller from 1948. It's another all-black musical. Come On Cowboy, it's another all-black musical western, uh, and several others through the 1950s as well. Um, many of those, though, are you know, non-Hollywood productions, what they would call race films. Um, But some of them weren't, you know, Stormy Weather coming out from Fox and Cabin in the Sky coming out from MGM um, enjoyed, you know, relatively high budgets and were, you know, full-fledged Hollywood productions. So I did see Stormy Weather a few years back and I, since then, had been uh, intrigued about this one, you know, knowing that it came out in the same year and being, you know, one of these rare examples of all black musicals, I figured, you know, this kind of appeals to my interests. Um, anyhow, the plot for this one is all about a dude named Little Joe. Uh, he's a, a well-meaning dude, but a little bit down on his luck. And unfortunately, he's dealing with a gambling problem. Um, his supportive wife does what she can to help the guy, you know, including trying to get him to give up blackjack for a church-going type of life. Um, But Little Joe's gambling debts catch up with him eventually, and he's shot in the belly at a local saloon. Uh, He's then brought back home where he's lying in bed and having visions of the forces of heaven and hell battling for control of his soul. Uh, This includes a group of devilish dudes who are supposed to be demons, uh, including Lucifer Jr., Um, and as his assistant, a surprise small acting role for Louis Armstrong, uh, which is cool to see. Uh, But they're basically just regular dudes, you know, dressed up in Civil War-style uniforms uh, who also have cute little devil horns gelled into their hair. Um, And so as you would expect, you know, these devilish forces tempt little Joe as he tries to put his life back together. Um, And one of these temptations is in the form of the gorgeous and aforementioned Lena Horne, uh, the talented singer and actress who here plays a Jezebel sort of figure. Uh, she shows back up in little, in little Joe's life and they start going out to Duke Ellington shows together and, and witnessing wild swing dances from the swing dance group, Whitey's Lindy Hoppers who feature in this, uh, which of course, you know, jeopardizes not only little Joe's, happy life with his loving wife, but it also jeopardizes his very soul. Dramatic music. 
Uh, also featured in the cast beyond Lena Horne, uh, Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, and Whitey's Lindy Hoppers. You got the tap dancing duo Buck and Bubbles, who were the first black artists of any kind to appear on television. Uh, they appeared on television in 1936, uh, performing at the Alexandra Palace in London for the BBC. Uh, you also got the charming Butterfly McQueen, uh, who you might remember as Prissy from Gone with the Gone with the Wind. She's the maid in that, uh, and several other top talents from the day, uh, all African American. Uh, but I think my favorite performance in this is from the guy that plays Little Joe. This guy Eddie Rochester Anderson. Uh, he's got a great, fun, raspy voice uh, and a lot of fun little moments. I love the part where he uh, he thinks he's going to get rich in the elevator game because he just got a job as an elevator operator. I thought that was funny. And I guess this guy was pretty big at the time, although this is my first time uh, seeing him in a leading film role. Uh, according to Wikipedia, he got his start in vaudeville before getting into film and radio and then in 1937, he began his role of Rochester Van Jones, the valet of Jack Benny on uh, Jack Benny's NBC radio show, uh, at which point in time, Anderson became the first African-American to have a regular role on a nationwide radio program, uh, which he would carry over even uh, to the transition to television. When that show, the Jack Benny show, would move from radio to TV in 1950, uh, he would stay with it until the series ended in 1965. So even though I feel like nowadays, you know, people like, like us probably don't know the name Eddie Rochester Anderson guy was pretty huge at the time. So, you know, I, I was excited to uh, get a chance to know him better through this, uh, you know, musical that, that he stars in. And, and he has, uh, he has a voice very similar to Scatman Crothers. I feel kind like. of, yeah. Scatman Crothers, he kind of Richard Pryor ish at times. Like there's this one routine in this that he's got where his character has presumably died in bed. And so him as the spirit version of himself is standing and looking at his dead body in his bed. And his wife goes up and grabs the hand of the dead body and says, Oh, you know, your, your hands are cold. And he, the spirit guy, like snaps right back at her uh, with something like, of course they are, I'm dead. And just like his delivery there to me was like very, very Richard Pryor-esque and, and also very funny. I just thought he was very funny in this. And that was my main revelation here is that this Rochester fella is, is fun. You know, outside of that, you know, it, it was cool to spend some more time with some entertainers that I already enjoyed from, you know, their, their smaller parts in other musicals. Um, I wouldn't say that this stands out as an extremely top-notch musical film. Um, not that it's bad in the least. I think it's probably well above average for the time. Uh, just not, like, super spectacular in the way that it all comes together. It is very talky. It's just packed with words to the point of being a little bit exhausting at first. But I do think when you watch this, you have to kind of take a moment and, and try to appreciate like how much of a challenge it must have been to even have tried to make this movie back in the time, back in the day, because, you know, this is a time at which MGM doesn't only have to worry about offending, you know, their white audiences whom, you know, in a lot of parts of this country, they didn't want this movie played at their local theaters. I, I think there's even instances of like local sheriff's departments, you know, blocking distribution of this movie, 
which is crazy. But they also, of course, wanted to be respectful and, and not, you know, um, ruffle the feathers of their potential paying black audience as well. And so, you know, they did uh, consult with uh, black leaders before the production began. Uh, reportedly, the NAACP, NAACP congratulated them on the treatment of black people. Um, they said, uh, you know, this avoids cliches and racial stereotypes. Although I guess the NAACP was not involved in reviewing some of the marketing tactics used by some local theaters uh, who exhibited this back in the day. Because Wikipedia notes that the Broadway, well, for one, the Broadway theater in Portland had its theater staff in blackface for the showings. Probably not great. Um, but then they note here they note here that the Lowe's Theater in Dayton had its local hotels place a sign at each registry desk that read, if they don't have a room, come over to Lowe's. We have a great big cabin in the sky. Which to me seems to suggest that like racial profiling at hotels could be solved if you were just willing to sleep in a movie theater, like a, a double feature at the time. or like it's, I'm not sure what they're trying to imply there, but it's like, it doesn't seem right to me. Um, but yeah, overall... This is a grandpa movie. You know, I, I came into this kind of expecting it to be a grandpa movie. I got to admit that it turned out to be even more grandpa-y than I ever imagined. So I don't know how that's going to play out with y'all, but I still had a fun time watching this. It's, you know, again, not my number one favorite musical or anything like that. I think, in fact, Stormy Weather is a better watch. Um, but I'm glad that these movies exist, and I'm glad that they're not totally forgotten and maybe you know just maybe it was a, a nice bit of counter programming here for our our satan week to to pick a movie that is i would argue still about satan but is definitely <laughs> not like the others um but did you guys like this did you guys at least like the cool tornado scene towards the end or should i have instead picked south park the movie <laughs> well you know it's interesting i was I had never seen this before. In fact, I didn't know really anything about it when you picked it. Um, I just saw that it was a movie called Cabin in the Sky, and I saw that it was from, you know, 19, what is it, 1930? 43. Or 1943. So I was like, okay, this is going to be an old one. Um, but I didn't know that it was an all-African-American cast. And so that was interesting. It, it's it's one of these things, it's like you see a movie from 1943, and it's an all-African-American cast, and... It, it, it's a mixed feeling because on one hand you're like, Oh, that's cool that, you know, it gave African-American performers a chance to, um, you know, show their stuff and, and, you know, give them work. But it's also feels very segregationist, you know, just to have a deliberately all black cast as if like yeah. white people, you know, were too good to appear in the film. And, you know, obviously just, it, it it's a separate separatist thing. It's like, yeah, we can have black people movies and we can have white people movies, but we can't have movies for everybody. Especially in like the kind of wider like town scenes, you know, like when yeah. you're walking around town and like people are like pouring out of these buildings and none of them are white or Asian or Mexican or anything. I mean, they're just all African American. It's it's weird, yeah. But I also I mean, I would argue that like since most movies at the time were 100% white with right. no minorities, like, I don't know, it kind of 
in a weird way, almost balances things out to have this other alternate version of reality that is, you know, absolutely not reflective of the composition of our country or, you know, how things should be. But here's another fantasy version. And I wonder if like, and I can't speak to this because I'm not a black audience, but I wonder if black audiences kind of liked it where they're like, oh, cool. I don't have to have any stupid honkies in my movie. You know what I mean? Like if they're like, this is just for us, you know? Of course. I mean, I, I think, I think both things can be true. I mean, I think it's, I think obviously seeing representation on screen is important and obviously there should be black centric films, but it also does feel like, like I said, like a, a segregationist thing where it's like, yeah, we'll give black people a movie, but it's going to be all black. Like we can't have white people in the film and you know, I don't know. And vice versa. Like, I feel like, like you said, there's so many white movies, of course, that didn't have any black people in it, or if they did, they were in, uh, negative roles. And so, you know, the fact that this is a 1943 movie with an all African American cast is like, Oh, this is going to get <laughs> into some shaky ground. Um, but like you said, I think it was fairly, um, it's you progressive know, for the time. Progressive I, I, I for the think time. for yeah. 43, I don't think you could say that there's a bit of ill will in this movie. Like this is, I think this movie is created primarily because like people wanted to celebrate this culture and, you know, this, this artistry that was coming out of a very specific corner of America. Right. Yeah. It could have been a lot worse. That's for sure. And it's, yeah, but it's, it's not bad. It's, um, so yeah, but, uh, so all that aside, and, and like, you know, I'm, I'm always for taking things within the context of their time. I get that it's not, you know, 2023 when this movie was made, it was a very different time, yada, yada, yada. So I try to put that aside and just kind of focus on the flick. And that being said, I, there, I did find some entertainment here. Um, like you, I thought, um, some of the performances were, were really good, uh, and a lot of fun. I did like uh, Eddie Anderson as little Joe. I thought he did a great job as kind of the the comic lead, and, and he had some real funny parts. I really liked Ethel Waters as his wife, Petunia. I thought she was really good. Lena Horne, um, interesting, but, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I don't I don't see what the big deal was there. She's just okay. Um, it was cool to see well, Duke Ellington. She is a mega fox, right? kind of oh, i don't know that's a weird opinion okay i mean i know for the time I, I know that she was considered like you know a foxy dame and i get that but i don't know i, uh, she I thought she looked like me. a very nice second grade teacher right you guys are wild she is smoking hot um i liked rex ingram as lucius like kind of the head devil dude I thought he was cool and, and intimidating and fun. Um, I like the preacher dude with the super deep voice. You know, all good performances and, you know, fun times had all around. The story, of course, ludicrous. Um, like we talked about at the beginning of the episode, I feel like this is just the version of the Jack Chick track that he has been writing over and over again. <laughs> uh, it's just, you know, classic uh, dude leads a, a wayward lifestyle has a near death experience, uh, basically is given a second chance has to fight between, you know, the, the good angel on his shoulder and the devil on his other shoulder, trying to tempt him, uh, with his 
previous vices, um, whether it be gambling or the temptations of the local. I like how they just said daughter of Satan, which just means, I guess, in the parlance of their times, a woman who is not married and likes to have sex, you know, a real, real devil lady, you know, (laughs) which again is, you know, they might've been a little bit racially progressive, I guess, but certainly not the sexually progressive because, you know, obviously that's a very old timey view, but you know, um, I did like the, the kind of character turn that Petunia took as she, you know, she was kind of the, this lady that was in love inexplicably with a little Joe. Cause I don't know why this lady loved this dude so much. He seemed like he, uh, <laughs> he had all kinds of problems, but, uh, she was way into him. And then, you know, her turn is kind of, a a little bit more of a badass towards the end. I thought was, was fun. Uh, the music in it, uh, some of it was better than others. Like you mentioned, and there's some tunes that are pretty cool. Some dance sequences that are very entertaining. And then some of it, that's kind of just kind of, boring grandpa kind of shit um but again you, 1946 you, you like that duke ellington swing dance scene though right? absolutely that's yeah. that's what i'm talking about when it comes to the entertaining stuff but yeah some of the stuff some of the other songs were just a little kind of cookie cutter and not so great um i did love the uh the devil gang of those dudes with the uh the horns uh you know um shaped into their hair I thought those guys looked really cool, especially the one dude who was kind of bald and he had like the the points, like you said, kind of looking like the prodigy smoking yeah. a c- cigar in that one scene. Uh, pretty fun. And yeah, just overall, um, an entertaining watch for sure. I wasn't, you know, I, to be completely honest, I thought this was going to be a real kind of 1943 bummer, uh, but <laughs> it wasn't. It was It was definitely an entertaining watch. Um, a weird product of a, a weird time, uh, but nevertheless, I think one that's worth watching. And if you're especially interested in seeing, um, you know, African Americans portrayed on screen and black and white in the 1940s without being, you know, like a, a you know, like a housemaid or a, some weird, you know, servant or something like some actual character, it's good. But again, the story is pretty cookie cutter, kind of cheesy um and the songs aren't anything to write home about but still uh definitely pockets of enjoyment that are definitely worth checking out um yeah i i didn't know what to expect with this movie uh i looked it up a little to see kind of the premise and stuff and i was like oh cool you know a movie about satan you know for like that's this old this is probably going to be really metal you know um like Haxon, you know and i was like this is gonna <laughs> yeah. be great um, Black. And then I really <clears throat> like what? I said Blackson. <laughs> That's a good joke. Um, and then I realized, wait a minute, this is forty three. Like there was a ho a, a haze code at this point. So this is this is not going to be metal like Hexen. This is going to be Christian propaganda. This is going to be terrible. Um, and it kind of is. It kind of is that. So. I'm glad I'm not the only one picking Christian propaganda movies. <laughs> well, yeah, I, mean, I, I also you've got love- very little choice though when it comes to movies this old. I mean, outside of Haxon, there's very few pro Satan movies from the 40s. Well, that's true. That's true. I guess you could argue then why I pick movies from the 40s, and that's a totally valid argument. The 40s were the the lamest time. 
Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so I, you know, I was like kind of like expecting, expecting just, you know, that everybody was going to be praying the whole movie and they kind of are like, it's very, it, it, you know, Kevin's right. It very much is a chick track, um, movie. Uh, even right down to kind of the ending where, I mean, spoiler, spoiler alert for this movie. Like they really like evoke Sodom and Gomorrah really hard at the end. I think with the natural disaster, just destroying this, this den of hedonism. That is this club that these guys all go to, um, which I thought was like a little bit much like the fact that like they pray to Jesus to just destroy their entire town because of one fight. I thought was like, <laughs> kind of a crazy development for this movie. Kind of a weird lesson. It looks um, cool on screen, though, right? Didn't you like oh, seeing that bar good. get all blasted up? It looks fantastic. I mean, the the politics of of this movie saying that the only way to stop violence at jazz clubs is for, for God to destroy everybody kind of weird, but it looks great on film. I mean, it's like a super fun sequence. That whole everything. I mean, it's probably like half, the last half hour of this movie that they're at that club and and where little Joe's rich and like it's that stuff's also like super fun. I mean, there's like that great, like you mentioned, the swing number and, um, and then the natural disaster and all looks marvelous. It all looks, it, it's wonderful to look at. So, well, and I um, was also disappointed to find out that little Joe did not, uh, give up his gambling ways, at least not in the early nineties when ice cube had to back little Joe in a game of craps in the song. It was a good day. So I think they're talking <laughs> about the same dude. <laughs> I think so. Um, but yeah, there is, I mean, you mentioned that this movie is talky and it is, but I, I would much prefer the talkiness because I think with the exception of one song, all these songs are very bad to listen to. Oh, come on. It's all just like gospel music. Like it's not good. It's like people singing about how much they love Jesus, you know, or little Joe singing about how much they love little Joe. Well, yeah, those, those are the good ones. But uh, I like the song where like little Joe's making out with Lena Horn and then he's like, Oh, what am I doing? And then he sings a song about being tempted by her. That, that song's fun. Yeah. He's got a real fun singing voice. Yeah. And uh, he's also got a really good hammock in his backyard. Oh he's my God. Loud. That was a plush hammock. <laughs> it yeah. was amazing. I loved it. It had like um, a pillow and all kinds of cushions and shit. It was like yeah. a couch hammock. I've never seen anything like it. Yeah, he was living the good life. I don't know why this he needed to win the lottery or whatever. Like he was he was already like living. He he had the nice hammock, he had a wife, you know? Yeah, he had a the wife that loved him for no reason despite all his faults. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um I liked when the Satan dudes showed up. I was a little worried. For a moment I was like, "Oh my god, when the like there's going to be angel dudes who show up." And they're going to be white, aren't they? This is going to be oh, horrible. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> I thought weren't. I thought it was going to be funny if like it was an all black cast, but the only white person was the devil. That I thought would have been hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been pretty ahead of its time. That would have been yeah. good. Too yeah, I was really worried. Forty three. Yeah, I was worried that the only white people were going to be angels. I was like, oh, this is going to be so racist. But they proved me wrong, which I was probably. You know, so, like, I mean, I don't know how, how many white people were watching this movie at the time, but that probably would have been pretty shocking to have a movie that portrayed angels as being black. Like, I imagine that white people probably would have not enjoyed that at the time. 
So that was interesting. That was cool. And they all they all wear like cool outfits. I like their like uh, marching band outfits. I, well, actually, I can tell if they were like in a marching band or if they were in the Civil War. But either way, yeah, like I think they're they, supposed think to be Civil armor. War. Yeah. Well, I don't even know Civil War. I think they're just supposed to be, you know, generals in either God or Satan's army. So they're supposed to be like you know, military, divine military of some kind. I, w- I wonder, do the, it's tough to tell in the black and white, I guess, but do the colors align with the Civil War? Because I, I, that would be like the apt kind of, you know, m- metaphor to use, like the, you know, the war about slavery. Yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't know about the colors, but I mean, yeah, they, I mean, I, I feel like they kind of looked very, a little bit Civil War y. Because I mean, by this time, the most, I mean, they certainly didn't look like World War II soldiers, which would have been contemporary. Like they looked, they didn't really look, and they didn't look like ancient Greeks or anything. I feel like they were supposed to kind of evoke the Civil War to some degree. Um, so I like all those guys. Those guys are fun. But I don't know. I mean, this is all right. By the end, I liked it just because like that that climax is like super fun. Um, but I don't know. But this does seem like the kind of thing that you would have to watch at like Sunday school, you know. <laughs> growing up so i don't know it's like i don't know it's fine fair enough i mean i, I think the the three of us are probably fairly close on our opinions here um pretty far apart though in terms of our assessment of lena horn's foxiness um and if you want to potentially <laughs> challenge your feelings on lena horn uh there is a deleted scene from this movie um that you can see on youtube where it's lena horn in a bubble bath singing a tune and oh man it's it's one of those things. i see why they cut it this is blazing hot too hot for the screen you know hot just hot um another bit of trivia <laughs> yeah getting, getting horny during this jesus movie another bit of trivia uh that i just wanted to throw out there before we close this up is that the uh, the tornado effect that you see in the nightclub destruction uh, near the end of this movie was a reuse of the effect from the Wizard of Oz of all. Movies. I was gonna say, goddamn! I mm. thought so. I honestly thought that, but I was just like, well, just because it's a black and white footage of a tornado doesn't mean it's from the Wizard <laughs> of Oz. Well, but. and the irony there is that a couple years after this, the director Vincente Minnelli would meet and marry Judy Garland. So he used well, this ha- footage, and then he he met yeah. the lady. So. Well, when you have all that tornado footage in common, you're bound to strike up a relationship. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. It's so much to talk to you about these muslin uh, nettings or whatever that they use to make that effect. It's like, it's like a nylon or something that they use to make it. Um, anywho. Speaking speaking of reusing footage, yeah, um, I've never seen it, so I, I can't maybe speak to it as, as much as some of you guys, but like um, – a couple years after this, it's a wonderful life came out. Like, did that movie rip this off? Because like the end, it's it's a word up magazine situation at the end where guy wakes up and none of this actually happened and he just learns to be a good person, you know? So like which is like it's a wonderful life. Like is this I feel, feel like, like that this, movie ripped this was this off? Ev- every movie. <laughs> Almost every other movie <laughs> in the thirties and forties had a plot like that. <laughs> That's a good point. That is a good point. Yeah. Okay. All right, I take back my accusation. But they did steal the part in It's a Wonderful Life where everybody has those cool gelled devil horns. That is stolen from here. So Okay, that's that. Yeah. Um, but that about wraps it up for 
one of the more grandpa movies I've ever picked, and sorry for that. I uh, hope if you guys watched along out there that you, you were able to tolerate Cabin in the Sky from 1943. Uh, we'll be taking a quick break, and then we'll come back to talk about Alucarda from 1977. So stick around. <laughs> Please will meet you, Satan's my name I can make you sin, I can make you feel pain I can twist, I can make you seduce me Want to do the what to see, you can call me El yugo de la mentira y la falsedad. 
Soy un hombre de ciencia Y ahora me encuentro frente a algo Sobrenatural Que en verdad me atemoriza Esta mujer estaba muerta Pero había un hálito de maldad dentro de ella Listo para revivir y atacar a seres inocentes Eso solo podría ser La obra de lo que ustedes llaman El demonio Alucarda God the Father commands thee God the Son commands thee God the Holy Ghost commands thee con Claudio Brook. David Silva. Tina Romero. Susana Camini. Adriana Roer. Tina French. Welcome back to Junk Food Dinner 666, our Satan-themed episode. The next movie that we're going to be taking a look at on the show this evening is Al Yucarda from 1977. This is a Mexican movie, although it was filmed in English, uh, but it was shot in Mexico um, by a Mexican cast and crew, although uh, maybe the cast wasn't all Mexican, maybe some Americans in the mix, because like I said, it was shot in English, but uh, directed by Juan Lopez Moctezuma, um, and loosely, very loosely based on the 1872 uh, gothic novella Carmelia, uh, which kind of predates Bram Stoker's Dracula, but has similar themes. And while the name Alucarda, um, you might be thinking Dracula, because Alucarda backwards is a Dracula. And why are they fighting Dracula, for God's sakes? This is more of a Satanism slash nunsploitation flick. Uh, you it can't does, just assign vampirism to anything you don't understand. I said it many times, and I'll say it again. Uh, but yeah, this uh, the movie, it is a period piece. Uh, it does take place in 1850 at the beginning of the film, uh, where we see a woman giving birth to a baby in a kind of stable, you know, just, just laying in a pile of hay, giving birth to a baby uh, with nothing but the help of some ragged gypsy looking dude um, who um, helps uh, give birth to the baby, but then drops the baby off at a convent after the mom dies shortly after the childbirth. Um, and fears that there might be some satanic involvement. Uh, we then cut to what is supposed to be 15 years later, although these girls look a little older than 15, and I'd like to hope that they're older than 15 based on what transpires uh, down the road, but where we see uh, this young girl named Alucarda um, at a, 
at a convent, and she welcomes the arrival of a new um, resident of that orphanage slash convent, um, a woman, a young girl named Justine, uh, whose parents have both recently died, and so now she's under the care of these nuns. Now, these nuns, I've never seen nuns dressed like this in a movie or anything before. They're not dressed in traditional nun attire. They're in, like, these gauze that are wrapped around them, almost mummy-like. Yeah. And the gauze are bloody. They, all of them have blood all over them. And I don't know if this is because of their nun work, uh, you know, maybe acting as midwives or caretakers of the sick. Uh, but they also show that these nuns uh, participate in ritual flagellation, where they whip themselves and get whipped, I guess, in penance of God. So maybe their their clothes are bloody from that as well. But nevertheless, these nuns wandering around in bloody gauze um, and trying to instill the, uh, you know, the word of the Lord and some discipline into these young girls uh, under their care. But Alucarda has different ideas. She clearly is not listening to these nuns. She's a woman of her own accord. In fact, she might have a little bit of that devil in her. Maybe her mom was right right before she passed away before childbirth. Maybe Ayukarda might be, you know, a, uh, a spawn of Satan because she quickly convinces Justine to get involved. Uh, first in some innocent, you know, misbehaving, uh, but then it quickly turns very satanic in nature where uh she's introducing her to local satanic gypsies in the area engaging in uh some orgies stripping naked and doing some naked satanic rituals and just in general getting into some devilish shit um pretty soon it's not long before the the nuns and the priest uh get wind of their satanic activities and when the girls blaspheme uh, right there in church uh, the priest decides it's time to take matters into his own hands and perform an exorcism and try to get the devil out of these two girls before they spread their satanism to the rest of the community like a plague um, so yeah this movie is pretty wild I'd say if the, if I had to make a comparison Probably the movie that it closely most reminds me of is Ken Russell's The Devils. If you've seen that, it has similar themes of, you know, uh, period piece, uh, you know, nunsploitation, Satanism, blasphemy, all kinds of, you know, blasphemous imagery, um, weird Jesus-y sexuality and, and nun flagellation all similar themes. I've also heard this compared to the work of Alejandro Jodorowsky. I think that might just be the Mexican connection because, uh, other than that, I, I, I don't really see too much, um, commonality between this and Jodorowsky, maybe in some of the camera work and imagery, but nevertheless, um, I think it's, it's kind of, Oh, go ahead. It's pretty similar to, uh, not, not a Jodorowsky movie, but that movie that we did on the show, Satanico Pandemonium. Yeah, I could see that for sure. Um, but yeah, this movie is interesting. Like I said, it was filmed in English, um, so it's not 
you know that you don't have to watch subtitles or a weird dub although i do think there was definitely some dubbing done after the fact i think most of this was recorded adr but they were speaking english on the set and it was intended to be um you know released in the states although it was you know also released in mexico and in europe um under several titles i think it got put out originally um under its original title i think in the united states it was under the title i think is it satanic sisters or sinister sisters one of the two sisters of satan sisters of satan yes and also innocence from hell and mark of the devil in fact uh when it came out on vhs in the 80s um it did have a couple it came out under the innocence from hell title i think originally and then tz released it under um mark of the devil on vhs and that one i remember seeing in the video store because it touted uh, both on the front and the back the claim that this movie was banned in 31 countries very largely they wanted you to know that and i think that's kind of how they they sold this movie especially on home video and maybe in drive-ins is this thing that was like because I think it was genuinely banned, I think, just because of its obviously blasphemous nature and a lot of countries that are that frown upon that, especially in the 70s, um, place bans on this. So I think they really rode that as a selling point um, for future edgelords to check this out as <laughs> the satanic movie that was banned in 31 countries. Although, probably by today's standards, um, pretty tame. Although, I think it still has some shocking stuff in it. I know Guillermo del Toro is a fan of this. And yeah, I mean, while the plot is a little uh, a little thin and there's really not a whole lot to it, I think there is stuff uh, to enjoy about this. I think, you know, the settings in it are pretty cool. I like the general story of it. I like the idea of uh, girls being, you know, <laughs> persuaded by Satan to get into orgies and, and weird stuff and uh, freaking out the squares of the church and you know all that fun old-timey religious scare stuff that uh i think can be a lot of fun um so yeah i think this is definitely one that if you're interested in um old school satanic movies non-exploitation movies um mexican horror films i think this is definitely worth checking out it's a pretty short um run i think depending on the run uh the the version that you see uh you're usually looking at about uh, about anywhere between 60 and 77 minutes the 77 minute version i think is the longest one various cuts have had different things cut out for various reasons but i think if you find the 77 minute one that's the full one uh this movie did have a, a dvd relate release back in 2002 um i think mondo macabro put that out but I would hope that maybe eventually this will get a, a new cleaned up Blu-ray version. The one that's out uh, from Mondo Macabre looks all right, but it definitely is a, a pretty worn print and it has some, some weird issues to it. I, I don't know if any good elements of this exist to make a good restoration of, but hopefully one day we'll see a nice, nicer cleaned up version uh, than the 20 plus year old version that's out on DVD. Um, or the even older versions that are out there on VHS. But nevertheless, it's out there. You can find it. Um, I had never seen this before, but I wanted to pick something that was fairly notorious, fairly satanic, and this seemed to fit the bill. I've definitely seen you know, T-shirts with 
Alucarda and the upside down cross on it. I think again, edge Lords back in the day, um, might've flocked to this movie for its blasphemous and satanic tones. And I think there's something for enjoyment there, but you know, overall, I think it's a pretty, pretty quick watch. Like I said, it's 77 minutes in its longest form. I think it still goes by pretty quickly and there's enough crazy satanic imagery to keep you entertained throughout despite being a pretty pretty thin plot line. But overall, I enjoyed Ayukarta, but I'd be interested to find out what you guys thought of the Satanic Panic. No, you summon Satan! Um, well, I love summoning Satan. <clears throat> I've been wanting to hear or see this for a while, uh, because like you said, it's um, notorious in edgelord circles, and those are the circles I run in. Um, <laughs> <laughs> those are my online circles. Those are all the tumblers I follow. Those are the Twitters I follow. Um, so yeah, I feel like this comes up from time to time and it's immediately abrasive. This film, I feel like only a few minutes in, people are just screaming and hollering. And those are yeah. my least kind of, those, yeah, those are my least favorite kind of movies where people just scream and holler. And that's kind of all this movie is. Um, for a long time, lots of screaming. The director was like, hey, how can we convey Satanism in this scene? Screaming, screaming will do it. Now pour some blood on a nipple and we'll be print. We're ready to go. We're ready to put this in a theater. I like the way it looks. You know, I like the spookiness. I like the mummy nuns. Um, it's like a very, very like kind of a grim, dark sort of a tale. Everybody looks miserable, you know, like everybody's probably got the plague. And I like that. I like that aesthetically. But, but man, this, it, it really kind of goes nowhere. Like, it's just like, it really just has the two modes. Like, it's like, it's either like edgy softcore porn with ladies like licking blood off of each other. Or it's people just screaming. Um, there's a cool ending, though, especially when they start assigning vampirism to the movie. Which I, you know, why are they that. fighting Dracula for God's sakes? <laughs> some of that stuff near the end is fun. Like there's some cool like set pieces or I mean, one good set piece, but I don't know. I, I really don't even have a lot to say about it. It's just ladies screaming the whole time. I don't know. It's, I feel like there's nothing more to this movie. Like, it's just like chaos, you know? And I get like, that's kind of the point of what they're going for, but it's also not that fun to watch. Well, first off, I think it's kind of funny that all three of us picked movies that do not actually feature Satan. I mean, there are satanic elements. People are talking about the devil in two out of three of these, but uh, Satan doesn't appear. I think think you could make an argument that Satan's in my movie. Uh, It's never explicit, but I think think if you read between the lines, she's there. We'll we'll get to that later, but... What is true is none of us picked like a legend or anything where you got like a cool Lucifer on screen. Um, there, there is no like on screen representation of the Prince of Darkness in this. I just, I thought that was weird. I thought, I thought it was unusual that all, all three of us would, you know, come at least come close to Fredoing this week. Um, what are you talking about? The, my movie is, if I can defend myself, yeah, while Satan himself does not appear on screen. This could never be considered a Fredo pick. This is as satanic as they come as far as movies go. Yeah, I guess. I guess. I mean, they're satanic rituals. Sure, but in aggregate, the fact that out of all three of us, I couldn't get like one cool makeup job, even like a Highway to to Hell style 
Satan would have been nice. You know, like even a cartoon South Park Satan would have been cool. Just that I'm a little disappointed yeah. that, you know, episode 666 comes and goes. And I got no opinions on which Satan looked the coolest in any of these because he wasn't in many of these movies, you know? Hey, no one stopped you from picking a movie with Satan. You're the one that yeah. decided to do the, the goddamn oh, musical. I'm, I'm the, the most guilty of them all, but uh, mm-hmm. just amused by the fact that I'm not completely alone this week in my, my Fredo. <laughs> but it, yeah, yeah, anywho, um, I did see this movie once uh, a long time ago. Uh, as you mentioned, Mondo Macabro put this out on DVD in the early 2000s. And so I picked this up along with uh, Mansions of Madness from the same director. And, I, you know, I, I watched them then in my early to mid-20s, whatever that would have been. And I remember, you know, liking both of them. I rem- remember that they were both kind of atmospheric and spooky and that this one was a, a little bit more, you know, bloody and, and violent than the other one. But in general, I feel like my exposure to Mexican horror films is pretty limited. And, and I am always kind of looking for opportunities to dive in a little bit deeper, you know, into the, the world of Mexican horror. So even though I had seen this once before, I, I barely remembered any of it. And I was excited to go back and see, you know, if this would prompt, you know, a, a desire in me to go and, and see even more Mexican horror movies. And, and maybe I was in the wrong mood or, you know, maybe this hasn't aged great or, or maybe, you know, I'm, I'm just right on point based on what I'm hearing from, from Bowman. But yeah, I mean, I, I would be lying if I said that I felt a massive urge to dig deeper after rewatching this movie. Um, and I think a lot of it is, you know, what we've said uh, when we reviewed other movies like, um, you know, Ken Russell's uh, The Devils um, or, you know, even what we're talking about at the top of this episode that you know, this blasphemous stuff doesn't really land as super scary to me, you know, like me not being a guy who is invested in any meaningful way in religion, you know, this, it just kind of seems like a bunch of goofy horse shit to me. And, and so, you know, I think Mexican audiences though, in 1977, were probably terrified at the concept of anything even remotely blasphemous. So, you know, I'm sure that this landed differently back then uh, with that audience. And probably even things like, you know, the homosexual themes probably landed very differently back then uh, with that audience. But, you know, watching this in 2023, I think a lot of the shock has kind of worn off. And even though there are some interesting things in here about like the church itself being the real monster, it did kind of just feel a little bit annoying at times. Uh, part of it is that you know, those shocking levels of audio that this movie subjects you to. Like, this is the kind of movie that if you are going to watch it, you got to be prepared for a lot of loud screaming and also a, a lot of other just weird, abrasive noises on the soundtrack. A lot of just screeches and strange sounding noises, which sometimes is cool. I mean, that, that chaotic element, you know, as Kevin mentioned, is maybe kind of part of the point and can work to its advantage sometimes. But the movie is also just very scattershot, you know, scenes will sort of just randomly begin and end. Um, and it just kind of jumps all over the place. It feels like, 
um, which is frustrating. And then some of this just feels like straight up goofy, like the, the weird hunchback fella. He's kind of goofy. There's a part in this with a priest giving a big serious speech about how in 1491, some nuns became in his words, they became superhumanly strong which is just a funny thing to say when you want to be taken seriously to say the words superhumanly strong nuns. Just, you can't really take that serious when you're watching it at at home. Um, There's also a part in this where a nun is burned to death. At least we're told that she was burned to death, but I didn't see any evidence of that whatsoever on screen. She just looks like slightly bloody or something. Um, Maybe, you know, the pixels were to blame there, but yeah, it, it, you know, it feels goofy at times. I wasn't that into this actress who plays Alicarda. I thought she was just not that great, which was kind of unfortunate because so much of this movie hinges on her. Um, although her Wicked Witch melting technique is unstoppable. So that is, that is something. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just the kind of movie where like 80% of it is mostly just spooky atmosphere and sacrilegious speeches and stuff like this. And then... In the final 15 minutes, shit does go pretty nutsoid. So I, I guess, you know, I, I don't dislike this. I think that there is plenty to enjoy in this movie. There's that cool spooky cathedral building that's been wrapped in red cloth like it was built by the artist Christo. There's some fun analog synth on the soundtrack. Um, and I love that part towards the end where you actually do see a bunch of nuns spontaneously burst into flames. I thought that was pretty cool. Although there is like one guy, I think he's like a monk dude or something that works at the cathedral or what have you, who he catches on fire and the stunt actor in that role, man, I I'm worried about the guy because he legit <laughs> seemed like he was struggling to escape this fire stunt for a good 30 plus seconds. So um, add that to my growing list of stressful to watch fire stunts. Um, and I think maybe my reaction to this was less the movie's fault and maybe more our fault because, you know, like I said, th- this was the third of three that I watched. And by the time I got around to this, I was, I was hankering for a real depiction of Satan on screen and I didn't get it. And you know, that's probably not this movie's fault. Um, Probably I just put too much satanic pressure on this thing. Uh, but yeah, in, in the end, it's not a great film, but it, you know, it's reasonably effective in terms of like low budget, low brow, schlocky exploitation. And, you know, sometimes that's all you need. Um, even if you do feel like it's a boring watch at times, if you stick through to the end, I think you will be rewarded with a pretty insane climax that is, is worth the wait. Even if the, very end like the last 30 seconds or whatever make no sense and are pretty bad uh the rest (laughs) of that ending stuff is pretty good all right all right fair enough i don't know i still think it's worth checking out uh especially for you know historical significance yeah um you know an early blasphemous uh crazy depiction you know, of, of Satanism in, in young ladies. So, uh, if you get a chance, check it out. It's out there. Um, but yeah, so I think that just about wraps up for Al Carter from 1977. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to get into our final Satan themed movie of the evening. And that is invitation to hell 
from 1984, so stick around. Junkfad Diner. This is the final movie, and the name of it is Invitation to Hell. It's from 1984. This is a made-for-TV horror movie uh, that aired on May 24th, 1984, on the ABC network, a mere six months or so before the release of Nightmare on Elm Street. And the reason that's notable is because this movie is directed by Wes Craven. Uh, There is almost nothing about this movie. On the internet, uh, other than it was nominated for a primetime Emmy for art direction. Well, That's so it. 1984, though, was not only the year that Craven directed Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, it's also the year that he directed Hills Have Eyes Part 2. Yeah, pretty busy, busy year. Pretty, yeah. pretty 
kind of slumming at dark times before the release of Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, also, the same year that Punky Brewster debuts, which is oh, relevant yeah. for a reason that you'll mention in a minute, and the, the little boy in this, Barrett Oliver, um, did both Frank and Weenie and Never Ending Story. He's the lead in both of those in 1984. Big year for all involved, I guess. Yeah. The DP, Dean Coondy, was shooting Back to the Future, it looks like, at this time. So, yeah. So a lot of successful people doing a lot of successful things around this time. And then they also did this. <laughs> well, this was nominated for that primetime Emmy. Um, for set design, which I, I, don't, I don't get that. Yeah, that's. Yeah, I don't know what set they were meaning, but. Um, <laughs> but in this movie, uh, Robert Ulrich. Uh, who you may know from, I don't know, he's in Magnum Force. He's in some things. He's like got a recog- he's like a recognizable kind of like almost leading man who usually does like sidekick work in movies. You know, he you was, know he was like a big TV star in the '60s, I think, on that SWAT TV show and other stuff. Yeah, uh, him and his family, who features uh, Joanna Cassidy, who you probably know as um, what's her face from Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, Rose. Rose. I'm right yeah. on top of that, Rose. She's Rose. She's also uh, in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. True. Yeah. She's also one of the replicants in Blade Runner. Oh, okay. I didn't know that one. She's the, the snake lady in Blade Runner, and I think she brought her own snake for that role. That's nice of her. Save Ridley yeah. Scott a little bit of money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, Barrett Oliver is the son. He plays Robbie. Uh, Soleil Moon Fry, TV's Punky Brewster, uh, is the daughter Chrissy. <clears throat> they are moving to a new Silicon Valley home so that the dad can work on a new project. Um, they are among the tech bros. He's working on a new space suit that will take people into space, uh, withstand the pressures of space, and then also, for some reason, tell you of um, other life forms that aren't human are around you and whether or not they are benign or malignant. Uh, it's very high tech. Did you guys feel like this was kind of early to see a movie like focusing on Silicon Valley as a place? Like there's movies about technology before, but I feel like they always, I don't know, just seem to take place in just nondescript laboratories or, or whatever. But this does seem mm-hmm. to be like, there's that scene early on where like the sun is talking about, Oh, this is like micro computer heaven or whatever he says. Where they're, they're, I mean, it's like a thing that there's a place now where this stuff is made. Yeah, I thought that was like super interesting. I, I mean, I didn't even realize that Silicon Valley went back this far. I thought it was like a dot com era thing. So yeah, I was really surprised that that, that factored into this pretty ahead of its time to to uh, label the, the people who live in Silicon Valley as evil and those corporations <laughs> as evil. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> so yeah. So they. That's why they're here. Um, there is a woman, Jessica Jones, played by the wonderful Susan Lucci. Who's in the Lucci. Nominated, yeah, nominated for many Emmys. She is a kind of a figurehead of the community. She is like an ambassador to the, the country club there. In the very first scene of this movie. I was going to um, say, we can't just yeah. gloss over what happens in the very first scene of this movie. <laughs> in the very first scene of this movie. A limo driver's riding around the uh, the country club. 
He gets distracted by a couple of nice old 80s butts. <laughs> and he runs Susan Lucci over. Uh, but she pops right back up, gives him kind of a sassy look through his like rear view mirror where like she's popped up behind the, the limo. And then she melts this man to death. With- yeah. <laughs> the way that she pops back up, yeah. it almost looks like she's Jim Carrey as the mask. Right. Yeah. It's very Looney Tunes. It is. Very it's, silly. It's, yeah, it's it, it kind of makes you feel like the rest of this movie is going to be a lot sillier than it actually is. And there are definitely some silly parts. But, um, yeah, it's a little bit more tonally crazy than the rest of it. And I, I mean, like I said, I couldn't find anything about this movie. But I feel like the network was like, hey, we need something like crazy at the beginning or scary at the beginning to hook people in, you know, because that's how TV works. So Wes Craven was like, well, I'm just going to do something silly. Fuck you guys. Like, because this movie would work, even though I love this scene dearly because it's so silly, the movie would work a lot better if you don't immediately know Susan Lucci is evil. Like, because well, if the title of the fucking movie hadn't told you that, you know, <laughs> well, you don't necessarily know she's evil though. Well, who's getting invited anywhere other than this country club, you know? So yeah. I think, yeah, I think she does do a lot of the inviting. Yeah. She does all the inviting, but, um, but yeah, but after that scene where she melts the guy with her thoughts, then they do. 45 minutes of buildup and paranoia about what is Susan Lucci evil and what is she up to? So like after that first scene, it kind of doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, yeah. I mean, I think you do want something spooky up top here because otherwise most of this movie, you would just kind of scroll past this when you're flipping channels and never think that this was anything but just like a boring ass drama. So like <laughs> okay. it's, it's smart to put, but it shouldn't be with her. Like they should have, should have done something where, you know, somebody gets killed in a way where you don't know the identity of the killer or something like this, you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. The instinct to, yeah, put something scary at the beginning is not wrong, but yeah. The, then to also have a murder mystery about Susan Lucci after we know that she's evil is kind of weird, but, um, but yeah, after that, this movie is just kind of a, a family drama about a family that's like, adjusting to their new life in a new city. Like the kid is struggling to make friends and the wife is like bored and um, like, uh, you know, there's, <clears throat> they get invited to this country club and the kids and the wife really want to do it. Cause they're kind of like out of sorts, you know, and the husband, he kind of suspects that maybe there's something, some shenanigans going on. So he doesn't do it, um, but they end up joining without him. And then, they're, they're a little bit different. Perhaps they're a little body snatchery after that, which I think um, are there are a lot of direct nods in this movie to the, the invasion of the body snatchers. Most notably, Kevin McCarthy shows up for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we kind of unravel the mystery of this, this scary town and the scary country club. And spoiler alert, there is a passageway to hell inside the country club. Uh, possibly everybody's being replaced by demons or uh, very probably or possessed. I don't think it's like too clear. Um, Susan Lucci is the devil. They're clear about that. Um, and it all culminates at like a fun Halloween party where a guy is just casually dressed like a Nazi. Uh, they don't <laughs> make any mention about that at all. So a secret Halloween movie. You can watch this, this Schlocktober if you want. But I think I first saw this movie like a year ago when I was, or two years ago, something like that, when I was like trying to be a Wes Craven completionist. And I actually thought this was kind of fun. It's very silly and it's boring through a lot of it, but I, 
does such an interesting job of like bending a million different genres into a thing. Like it's, uh, you know, it's body snatchers. It's, um, Satan's in it. It's like a Faustian deal sort of a thing. Um, and then there's like Stepford wives. Yeah. Stepford wives for sure. And then there's like, they mix science fiction, like with the stuff with the astronaut suit with the supernatural. And there's like, you know, spoiler alert at the end, Robert Ulrich has to go into hell to save his family. And it's like kind of treated like it's actual supernatural hell, but it's kind of treated like it's just like a, an alternate dimension or something like that. And like the way that you kind of blend all these weird things together, I think is kind of fun. Um, and even if some of the movie is kind of boring and stuff like that, there's one scene in this that I think is um, pretty interesting and notable. The dad is like hanging out and it's like late at night and his kid and it, friends are having like a sleepover and he goes downstairs and one of the kids is watching like a horror movie, like really, really loud and like on uh, multiple horror movies on multiple TVs. Oh yeah, that's too. Um, and the kids just like, you know, focused on these things and the dad's like, Hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? And like, he kind of pops out of this trance and, and it's like a scary moment. And there's a scene that's very similar to that in Wes Craven's new nightmare. So, um, kind of interesting. The Wes Craven was still thinking about, the scariness of that like 30 years later, or I guess not that long, 15 years later when, when he made that movie and kind of redid that. Um, yeah, I don't know. This isn't the greatest movie. A lot of it's kind of boring, but I think it's like so weird and, and throws all these things together that I think is pretty fun. And also like, I mean, this came out right before nightmare on Elm street. So like if, the, if not for that movie, we probably would have got 10 more of this kind of quality of movie from Wes Craven. Like, <laughs> So, so it's kind of interesting to see where this guy was before getting his huge big break. So um, kind of a fun movie. What do you guys think about it? Yeah, um, this is also, you know, one of only a few Cravens that I had not seen before this week. And like you mentioned, I do feel like this is a movie that pretty much nobody ever talks about. I, I guess that is because it, you know, was made for TV. And, you know, certainly when I saw uh, that this was made for TV, I, I figured to myself, well, this is just going to be boring dog shit. That's, you know, this is why nobody ever talks about this. It's a, <laughs> it's a dumb made for TV movie. Um, but while we're talking about 84, you know, uh, as you mentioned, this came out right before Nightmare on Elm Street. It, it aired uh, May 24th, 1984, uh, apparently back when Temple of Doom was number one at the box office, having opened the day prior uh, but this was the same day, May 24th, 1984, that Vince McMahon Sr. died, who uh, ironically invented the Molar Ram heart-snatching maneuver. So just figured I, w- I would shout him out. Um, but yeah, back to the... R.I.P. To a real one. Uh, but yeah, back to the boringness. Um, for me, this falls under a special category akin to Brown movies, which is what I like to call business casual thrillers. You know, they, they made a lot of these drab looking business casual thrillers uh, in the late seventies through mid eighties, you know, these kinds of movies where if you, you know, if you pay attention to what people are saying, I guess maybe something spooky is happening in the story. But like, if you watch it with the sound off, like most of the scenes are just dudes in tweed jackets standing around, boring looking office buildings, having discussions you know, the kinds of movies that you would rent as a kid because the cover featured the exactly one cool part of the movie on the cover, you know, where there's a special effect or something like that. Um, 
but most of the runtime is just kind of older dudes, you know, whether they're like former TV actors or what have you, uh, just kind of lazily reciting the script at the audience, um, sometimes in a laboratory, sometimes in a police station, sometimes in a regular old office building, but always in a boring looking place rather than a cool looking desert landscape or a cool looking abandoned factory or anything like that. And so this being one of those, you know, we spend a lot of time in this dumb lab and there are like some minor hints of like cool sci-fi lab set design, but overall it leans a lot more towards being boring and kind of realistic. So I'm, I'm surprised it did win any kind of award for that. Um, and then outside of the lab, you got this poltergeisty suburbia, which I think they shot this in the same area of Simi Valley as poltergeist a couple of years before this. Um, and I, you know, I think in Poltergeist, Spielberg and Hooper utilized the boringness of suburbia to good effect, actually, because they they did this thing where it felt like they brought the terror directly into your own neighborhood. But in this movie, I don't think anything actually scary really happens too much in suburbia. I mean, I guess you do have that kind of, uh, you know, the scene where the, the son is obsessed with the scary movies on the TV but for the most part, it's just where like the main character retreats to, to be boring in between the other scenes. And so, I don't know, I, I thought a lot of that stuff at home was was pretty dumb and sometimes just like, honestly, kind of baffling. Like there's this one scene early on that I think really illustrates how Wes Craven can be a real crumb bum director who doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. Because there's this scene where early on these kids come over to play with the the little boy of the house. And they mention in kind of a casual way and in a way that no little boys would ever say to each other, they say, Oh, Hey man, this furniture looks really old, you know, as if little kids would care at all about the furniture uh, in their friend's house. And it's a weird line because like the furniture does not look old. It just looks like whatever regular furniture from 1984, but it prompts the dad to take it real seriously and like lean over to his wife and be like, Hey, let's get new furniture. And then she's like over the moon excited about it. Well, because leading up to that, she had asked him, she wanted to get new furniture for that same reason. She said, the furniture looks outdated. This place looks like a frat house. Can we please go furniture shopping? She's like, and and she even says like, okay, well, and he's like, no, we don't need to go furniture shopping. She's like, all right, well, your kids friends are going to make fun of it, the furniture and like that's what happens the kids are like look at the old furniture and it's like okay you're right let's go furniture shopping so there's a bit of a lead up to it, it wasn't just out of nowhere well yeah and and it does pay off later where the furniture that she selects is you know very Satanic. modern yeah and it's <laughs> supposed to be so scary that she's into modern furniture or whatever but i don't know it it just seemed like so bizarre like this is not how people talk to each other in their homes and i don't know um on the upside i think we have a well, reasonably go ahead it, it is odd that like that's the thing that like they're getting enticed by as part of this faustian deal is like new furniture to whereas like we saw earlier with little joe like he's got like a top hat and a tux and he's riding around in like a fancy automobile you know yeah he's got so, a foxy babe in a bathtub yeah so then yeah it's kind of starkly different in this one where it's just uh yeah furniture <laughs> that's all they yeah. wanted. <laughs> that's, I guess that's, you know, that was the hot ticket in 1984 is a, a new chase lounge. But 
uh, yeah, it, prominent in in this movie for some reason is is the furniture. Uh, but on the upside, you know, I do think that we have a reasonably fun cast. I like how Susan Lucci looks in this. You know, she looks very glamorous, as if she was in some 1980s cosmetics commercial. But also looks like she stuck her finger in a light socket with all that frizzy hair, um, which is, you know, it's it's fun and very appropriate for the time. Uh, I also always love seeing Kevin McCarthy on screen, you know, even if he is completely wasted in this movie gets absolutely nothing cool to do, which is fucked up. Uh, and I like Joanna Cassidy who, again, is kind of wasted in, in a lot of this movie. She, she gets a little bit more fun to do. Like when she has her turn towards evil at the end of this movie, it is kind of fun for her, but for a lot of this, it's pretty thankless. Robert Urich, I have less connection to, um, despite actually once hitting him with a golf cart, on a golf course in New Hampshire when I was like six years old. Uh, I don't really care about the guy very much. Um, <laughs> he's just kind of fine in this. Um, but it's not like his character is written in a way where he would get the chance to showcase his skills at being good at anything. He's just kind of fumbling his way through this plot, just being kind of boring, kind of mildly investigating things. Uh, the way that he thwarts his killer evil wife towards the end of this movie is to just kind of like lazily push her and she falls to the ground and is just like immediately knocked out cold, which is great. That's, that's an awesome semi-climax to this movie. Um, and then the very end of this movie is just poltergeist. It's just hundred percent poltergeist. So that that's kind of lame. Um, oh, something I noticed though on Wikipedia that I thought was interesting that I, I never knew before this week, Michael Berryman is, reportedly in this, although I was looking for him and I must've just blinked at the the one scene that, that he was in this cause I didn't see him, but he's in the credits and that prompted me to click on his Wikipedia page. And I noticed something that I had never seen before, which is that Michael Berryman's dad was a U.S. Navy neurosurgeon who was deployed to the Hiroshima fallout zone. Speaking of Oppenheimer in the wake of the atomic bombing. And I wonder if they have ever connected his rare genetic disorder to that, that the man who would go back to the States and father Michael Berryman, who was born with a very rare genetic disorder. Kind of weird that you know, the thing he was doing right prior to that was hanging out in this nuclear fallout zone. So maybe that might be the source of uh, his condition. I mean, I'm not a Oppenheimer myself, so I don't know, but uh, I thought that was weird. Uh, what else about this movie though? Oh, I, I like the cave stuff near the end. And I guess I will consider this now an unofficial journey to the center of the earth movie, just based on that one scene. (laughs) Perfect. Um, perfect. But yeah, overall, this is not so boring that it's unwatchable, but I would say it flirts with that level of boredom for most of its runtime. I wouldn't really recommend people go out and see, see this, but if you're a Wes Craven completionist, you'll probably find that this is, not as bad as it could be, maybe. Um, you know, just uh, be prepared to be bored whenever Susan Lucci is not on screen looking like the daytime fox that she is. <laughs> yeah, like you guys, I had not seen this before, um, had not even really heard of it. Um, I'm not really a West Craven completionist, but yeah, I would have thought that this would have come up. Um, if it was even worth a damn, people would have probably be talking about it because I think people like 
you know, kind of hidden gems in a director's filmography. I think people like to call out um, classic made-for-TV movies that were probably better than they had any right to be. And the fact that this one isn't one that's getting brought up uh, was probably my first indication that this was, yeah, not so great, which is a bummer because it has a lot of things going for it. I mean, like you mentioned, it's uh, directed by Wes Craven right around Nightmare on Elm Street time. It's got a great cast, the Robert Urich, uh, Joanna Cassidy, Susan Lucci. Like you mentioned, uh, it's got the kid from NeverEnding Story and Frankenweenie and uh, Punky Brewster. It's got a lot of stuff that should be amazing in this. And like you said, it's, uh, you know, satanic kind of in its theme. But as you guys have mentioned, and I will echo, it is kind of boring. It does start off very humorously with Susan Lucci getting run over by that car and popping back up like the T-1000. That I thought was hilarious. I'm like, oh my God, okay. I see why you picked it. It's like, this is going to be like some notoriously goofy, bad, like, you know, kind of piece of made-for-TV infamy where this movie was so goofy that people remember it. But it's like, after that goofy opening scene, it's not really that goofy at all. In fact, like Sean mentioned, it's kind of just a lot of talking. It's like family drama stuff mixed with business drama stuff. And you're like, when's this going to get goofy again? Like with that Susan Lucci part. And it does get a little goofy towards the end, but you know, at that point it's kind of too little too late is if you ask me, uh, because yeah, for the most part, this movie unfortunately is pretty, pretty boring. I think, first of all, I disagree. I think that, all the technology stuff and like the whole end part where he goes to literal hell and all this stuff, totally unnecessary. I think this would have been actually a better movie if they had kind of pared down the script a little bit, because I think it's an interesting concept of this family, you know, that's like kind of moving, you know, they're kind of moving from the Midwest to California. They're he's getting involved in this new job I think the, the, the real story should just be, and then they start, you know, getting, trying to be persuaded to join this country club and the country club is Satan. You know, it's, it's a metaphor for Satan and it's kind of just using that metaphor of like, you know, the rich people and the haves and the, the Stepford wife kind of people as being this, you know, allegory for Satan I think that's enough. I don't think we need all this spacesuit crap and all this like sci-fi part of it. I just think that bogs it down as well as just the fact that it's a made for TV movie. I mean, I always try to give made for TV movies a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, just because obviously you're working within the confines of network television. It doesn't have as big a budget as Hollywood. You can't have gore nudity or really a lot of, uh, anything intriguing. So if they get away with even anything, I usually kind of give it a pass. But when you compare this to something, um, you know, like another Halloween themed kind of made for TV movie, like dark Knight of the scarecrow, it's like, uh, this could be a lot better. And like I said, especially with the cast and the talent behind this, I feel like this should have been a lot better than it was. Now, granted, I'm, I'm sure this wasn't exactly like a passion project, for Wes Craven this or any of the people involved. I'm guessing this was all just a collective paycheck and, 
you know, be in some TV movie of the week, which they thought, well, this will be forgotten in a couple of weeks anyway. Nobody's going to be talking about this thing 40 years later. Joke's on them. Here we are. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It, it's, I don't think this is anything that you really have to seek out unless you are a Wes Craven completionist and want to see everything the man did. Um, but really, it's it, it's really just kind of a boring uh, made-for-TV melodrama about, you know, family, family crisis and, you know, tech, you know, tech crisis of the early 80s. So there's some interesting stuff to it, but uh, not an essential watch for sure. Were you guys mad at Joanna Cassidy that she threatened to kill the dog? Oh, yeah, that was wild. That was pretty ruthless. That was yeah. ruthless. That's one of the highlights. And, and she, well, yeah, because she, she took it to get euthanized for, because the dog could sense the evil after they switched. And then she just, yeah, told the guy to put the dog down. And she's like, and let me watch just to prove that she was <laughs> especially satanic. Yeah, very satanic. I did like that scene, though, with the vet. I thought he was good. I, I thought that was kind of spooky the way that he, you know, revealed to the husband, like his wife's behavior. I thought all that was maybe some of the best stuff in the movie actually yeah yeah that's a really good scene yeah but yeah i think you guys are mostly right i think you guys are yeah you, you guys are pretty right I, maybe i'm just more inclined to enjoy this kind of goofy and not even, i mean like i said not even really that goofy but the parts that are goofy are goofy in a way that i enjoy but uh but we're gonna take a break and when we come back we are going to take you guys all to another dimension that may or may not be hell so stick around Next thing you know, he's boning this chick. All right. Well, that wraps up our monumental 666th episode of Junk Food Dinner. We'd like to thank everybody for tuning in and listening. If you like the show, make sure you visit our website, junkfooddinner.com, where you can find all of our previous episodes, both Junk Food Dinner and Junk Food Supper, easily chronicled for your listening pleasure, or just make it easy on yourself and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast but i'm guessing you're probably already doing that as you are a fan uh so help spread the word even more by telling a friend or foe about junk food dinner someone who you think might like the show pretty much most of the people that have new listeners to the show heard about it from a friend either online or in real life so hey don't hesitate to give jfd a shout out wherever you might be recommending podcasts uh, that being said, if you'd like to keep up with the podcast, you can follow us on all your favorite social medias, the Facebooks, the Twitters, or X, I guess as it's called now, the Instagram. But let's be honest, fuck all that shit. That's all for grandpas. The real party is at Discord. So go to Discord, download the app, ask for an invite, come on in and talk junk for dinner with all your pals uh, right there in the JFD Discord. So yeah, and then... As you've probably gotten used to the new rotation by now, uh, you can check out episodes of Junk Food Supper in between monthly episodes of Junk Food Dinner, the classic style. Um, and give us a call on the Junk Food Dinner voicemail line. Let us know what you think about the show, either Junk Food Supper or Junk Food Dinner, by dialing 347-746-JUNK. That's 347-746-5865. Have your voice be heard on the show. Next week, we go out of the frying pan and into the fire as we go from our Satan week right into everybody's favorite time of the year, Ghoul Summer. And we will be taking a look next month at three 
ghoulish films, uh, including The Titicut Follies from 1967, uh, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer from 1986, and Song of the Blind Girl from 2011. So make sure you tune in for that. will be an interesting time. And make sure you tune in for all the episodes of Junk Food Supper in between tonight's episode and the next episode of Junk Food Dinner. So, until next time, this is Kevin Moss for Parker Bowman and Sean Byron saying adios, everybody. We will see you next time.